We are live from the most shadowy corner of the internet with author, researcher, future thinker, home of the Amish 2.0, your host, Forrest Moretti. The truth behind the lies. The world's number one most reliable source for misinformation. Get ready for your mind to be blown. Greetings, everyone. Thank you for joining. This is the debut episode of the Forest Murdy Show. Stay tuned. It's going to be a lot of fun. The future analyzed. The enemy identified. The weak terrified. The midwit paralyzed. The truth amplified. The sick unvaxified. The very nature of God explainified. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the most interesting, the most incredible opinion on planet Earth. This is the Forrest Moretti Show. enjoyed that as much as I did. I'm not sure whose idea that was um, to do something quite so ridiculous as that show open for a podcast radio show. But uh, there you go. These subtitles are a lot of fun. I don't know if you've been reading them for those of you on video. Um, the uh, the VO guy um, says some funny stuff, the midwit paralyzed, and the uh, subtitles didn't quite catch that. Uh, it says the sick unvaxified and um, definitely didn't catch that one either. <laughs> but anyway, uh, welcome to the show. This is Forrest Murray. I'm your host. This is the Forrest Murray Show, the title of which was um, not my idea. If you're wondering, um, I had a couple of other ideas in mind. Um, I wanted to to do a show called Wokezilla. I always thought Wokezilla was just a really funny name. And I have a bunch of t-shirts uh, designed for the Wokezilla brand, if you want to call it that. Um, and um, I was vetoed by my family. Um, I wanted to call it Mad World because we are living in a mad world and everything seems to have gone crazy. And I thought Mad World... Uh, would be kind of an interesting name of the show. And again, my family vetoed that. Um, so here we are with the uh, Forrest Moretti show. For those of you who know me, you know I'm sort of a self-deprecating humor kind of guy. I don't like um, 
building myself up any more than I have to. If you, you hear anything that sounds like I'm building myself up, it's it's all an act. It's a, it's a way to get around the social anxiety I have about building myself up. So uh, the Forrest Murdy Show it is. Um, this is the first episode. I'm, I'm hoping to do quite a few. I'm hoping to do them at least once a week, uh, usually with guests, uh, maybe more than that. Uh, sometimes I call it a radio show. Um, because I'm doing it in a radio format, I'm doing it to time with breaks that start on the hour and stop on the half hour and that sort of thing. And I'm not sure how it's going to go tonight. This is the first time I've ever done a live stream, I believe. I may have tried one years ago when I first started on Facebook or YouTube with the My Incredible Opinion series. But um, I've been I've heard from people that there's an energy level that comes from doing live that you don't get when you do a pre-record. And I'll vouch for that. I was uh, really nervous as the counter was starting to count down and I was trying to get everything lined up and make sure I was on uh, Twitter spaces and to make sure the video stream was going and uh, make sure the music was queued up. And um, it's very intense, uh, even if there's one or two people listening, just having it live is, is a whole nother, a whole nother ball of wax. And, um, I have to say so far, I'm enjoying it. Um, anyway, the, uh, the show is, is about what is going on in the world and, and what can we do about it? Um, there are a lot of takes out there that talk about, all the bad things that are happening, and there's certainly lots of bad things happening out of there. And uh, it's uh, a lot of people are worried and concerned of what's going to happen to our country, what's going to happen um, to us as human beings. Um, what if, if you're a Christian like I am, what's going to happen to Christians? Um, there's all sorts of uh, things to get worried about. And, and I I get worried about these things sometimes, but I'm also excited about the future. I'm also optimistic about the future because there are a lot of things that were broken in the world and no one seemed to listen. You know, years ago, I started talking about vaccines and I certainly wasn't the first, but I was maybe six or seven years, eight years ago, I started speaking up about them. And, uh, you know, no one would listen. I, I was sort of shouting to the wind. Now, there was there was definitely some people uh, who may be listening right now who supported me and um, bought my crazy t-shirts and maybe came to see me speak at a conference, and, and I certainly appreciate that. But uh, for those people, you know what I'm talking about. It, it felt like you were sort of uh, shouting to the wind, and people thought you were crazy and no one would listen. And um, I did a bunch of videos on Facebook and YouTube under the My Incredible Opinion series, and that was back in the good old days when Facebook and YouTube didn't censor and you could say about anything you wanted and you could put a video out there about Zika and get a million views on it, which just seems crazy nowadays, uh, given how, uh, how badly YouTube and Facebook censor things. But back in the old days, you could put whatever you wanted and it was a lot of fun. Uh, we got hated uh, so viciously, lots of hate mail the occasional death threat, um, but it was it was kind of an interesting time in that uh, we felt desperate uh, because vaccines, of course, were, are a serious issue, but um, it was hard. It was an uphill battle. 
And then uh, coronavirus came along. And coronavirus was a real interesting event, of course, in, in a bunch of ways. Uh, but from the sort of anti-vaxxer side of things, which is what I, I called, it, called myself at the time, it was very interesting in that it caused a lot of people to start asking questions about vaccines and other things, medical tyranny and government mandates and all these things. It, it started making people ask questions about them in a way they'd never done it before. And of course, the censorship just went to 11. They turned it up all the way. And you had to be super careful about what you said. And I essentially just shut my mouth um, because I felt like, again, uh, all you're going to do is just get kicked off. I I thought maybe privately I can speak to friends and family and try and steer them this way or that. But I kept my mouth shut because... um, I just felt like it was kind of useless. And there was, of course, a lot of deplatforming and canceling and all that at that time. But uh, the end result is it was a blessing in disguise. There were a lot of people that woke up to the harm that vaccines cause. There were a lot of people that woke up to the lies that the media tell. And of course, that wasn't just through vaccines. That was also through uh, political narratives and global warming narratives and all of these sorts of things. So uh, coronavirus was an interesting time, three or four year period, where people started getting really interested in the things that you and I had been interested in perhaps for years and couldn't get anyone to listen to us. So um, I still sort of kept my mouth shut during that time. I wrote a lot of books And um, the books have done fairly well, Um, but I've realized that people aren't reading as much anymore. I don't know if you've noticed that in your own life. Um, I've certainly noticed it in my life. I used to read all the time. And either uh, through stress or through our brains getting fried from social media or um, perhaps Uh, the lingering after effects of a coronavirus infection, of which I really had a doozy of one, and uh, perhaps from coronavirus vaccines themselves, hopefully not not spreading uh, surreptitiously. Um, But regardless, I I feel like people don't read as much anymore. And uh, my last book that I made was actually a a book of photographs. It had over 400 photographs in it. And uh, I may talk about that book one day, but I'm not, I'm not here to talk about that book right now. But I just wanted to say that I did create the book in a way that I felt maybe people will latch onto this story because it's mainly photographs and it's not just words. And so uh, that book's done okay. But I thought, you know, I've got a lot to say Um, My family, we have lots of deep discussions about these things, and I thought, why not share them? Why not share the sorts of things that we talk about and I talk about uh, on a bigger platform? Because people seem to like podcasts, people like videos, and so here I am. We've got, uh, I don't know, about eight or ten months left in our country's history. Um, (laughs) I don't know about you. Uh, I've got a little timer that's counting down to, I suppose, January 6th of next year or perhaps the election of this year, when I'm guessing this country may finally uh, breathe its last breath. And uh, you may think I'm a little bit 
pessimistic. You may think I'm optimistic that it'll make it that long. But um, I'm guessing this year, this Super Bowl, this Summer Olympics, all these things may sort of be the last year for American history as we know it. I, I just don't see it lasting much longer. There's been um, some papers written about the average lifespan of any great empire is 250 years. And um, America, you know, if you consider 1776 its official year of birth, we are essentially about two years away, just over two years, I suppose, from our 250-year mark. And I think it's really starting to show, I think most people would at least agree with that, that the American empire is, is fading. Our, our military might, we can't project power like we used to, and we can't um, go to the bargaining table with the leverage we used to. Even our economy, the, the once mighty dollar, is, is being upended as we speak, um, partly through countries like the BRICS countries, who are creating an alternative currency, which, of course, they hope to be the world reserve currency at some point. But uh, also, unfortunately, it, the dollar is being upended by our own government, which has uh, hit the print button one too many times. And the value of the paper rectangles that we hold in our wallet and digitally hold in our bank accounts is going down by the day. I'm sure you've noticed this at the grocery store, at the restaurant. Um, I just went to the grocery store the other day and took a look at my favorite meal, the perfect meal for the zombie apocalypse, which is Velveeta shells and cheese. It has a delicious Velveeta sauce in a foil packet, which will essentially be currency in the zombie apocalypse. I went and took a look at the price of it, and what used to be $1.49, uh, maybe not too many years ago, which I, I think I had seen it as recently as maybe 239 or $249, it was $4.29. So the price of Velveeta shells and cheese has gone up, as I'm sure many other things have. And it's concerning um, for those of us who have to spend money uh, that we earn to pay the bills, unlike the government, which can print money to pay the bills, it's a very concerning thing, and uh, I want to talk about that some. I want to talk about what do we do to prepare for that? What do we do to safeguard any savings we may have? Because uh, things are, are accelerating. The, the BRICS countries, I, as I mentioned, are quickly accelerating other countries away from the U.S. dollar as, it's, uh, as the world's currency um, because essentially uh, the U.S. government weaponized the dollar against Russia and it was ready for it. It, it started uh, walking hand in hand with China and a few other countries and said, okay, that's fine. Well, we'll, we'll do things on our own. We won't use dollars to pay for things anymore. And the so-called um, economic sanctions against Russia have backfired and have accelerated the demise of the U.S. dollar. And it's really, uh, I feel, a matter of time before 
the dollar implodes globally, if not domestically. But that's a whole nother conversation for a whole nother guest. Um, two or three people come to mind that I'm hoping to get on the show who are experts in this field and certainly can talk about it far more intelligently than I might, because I'm just sort of a a half half wit when it comes to economy. But regardless, um, I'm doing the show because I think there's a lot to talk about. I see a lot of people talk about what is happening, what is going to happen. And, and there's this sort of nefarious talk about the global elite and the cabal and this people and that people, and they just want to control us. And I think there are those people that does exist. Um, I'm always one for a good conspiracy theory, if, if, it, if it meets certain scientific criteria of mine. But I think there's something more evil at play than even that. And it's the kind of talk that will likely get me kicked off of most anywhere. So maybe I'll save it for later. Maybe a little bit later in the show, we'll get into it. But uh, for now, just know that I intend to try and explain exactly why all the craziness, all the wickedness, all the nincompoops are going around doing crazy things right now. I think I understand why. And it's something I haven't seen anyone explain clearly, either because they're afraid or they just don't see it. So um, that's one of the things I hope to talk about during the show. Now, I'm going to put a little timeline up here on the screen for those of you watching, because I want to explain the format of the show. Um, I may go three hours by myself. I may do that. I don't know if that's possible. My voice might not hold up. I might run out of drink or food. Uh, but I want to do a thorough show with guests and make it really interesting in such a way that we, we start kind of light and, and we just talk about the guests themselves. What are they like? Where are they from? Um, what was their education? What were they like as kids? And we'll sort of do that in the first half hour, the first hour, half hour. And then in the second hour, we'll get a little deeper. We'll talk about events and happenings. If you've ever seen me talk about what I call the, uh, the hierarchy of action, it starts with people and then it goes to events and then it goes to ideas. And uh, most people like to talk about people. That's sort of the the trivial thing is, you know, complain about this person or that person. Gosh, can you believe what Tony Fauci did? Um, what's Donald Trump up to now? This sort of thing. And then you go to events, which is talking about uh, coronavirus vaccine mandates or the World Health Organization's meeting or global agenda 2030. And then once you go through that, you go up to the next level and you go to deep talk. Um, where you talk about ideas. And this is the real meat of meaningful conversation, of trying to understand what's happening, trying to understand where do we go, what do we do, how do we protect ourselves, how do we protect our children against the future, how do we safeguard um, what is precious to us in such a way that we can um, look forward to the future. And I think ideas are really where that starts to happen. And so um, that will really start to 
get discussed in the third hour um, when I have a guest on. So um, today, the the guest is me, and I'm going to go through this. I've written down a bunch of questions that a potential interviewer might ask me. I hope you find them interesting. And at the after about every break, I've got a little interesting segment um, that I'm going to start the segment the 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 next break off with, which is uh, this thing called object of my affection. And there's another one called a verbal vendetta. And then there's one more that's not pictured on here called signs of decline. And these things or the things that I'm going to talk about when I come out of a break, they're fun little things. Object of my affection, for instance, is something that's important to you that if your house were on fire, it would be the first thing you grab and, and not a picture of, of your loved ones or your I don't know, something like that, or your pet, cat or dog, something interesting that is very precious to you. And that's what I'm going to talk about uh, in a little bit, because I have several objects of my affection, and, and it's really easy for me to talk about that. So um, that's the format. Uh, I'm going to have some really interesting people on, and we're going to go through these things. We're going to talk about the person themselves. We're going to talk about some events and happenings that that person might have uh, had something to do with. And, and next week, there's a guy uh, who we call Woe, who was doxxed by Antifa because of some controversial things he said. And the Lutheran congregation or denomination or uh, senate or whatever they call that he's a part of, I, I believe they excommunicated him for what he said. And... And I love people like that. I love people who put skin in the game and, and they, they put their foot down and they say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say what needs to be said, come what may. And, and I like to think of myself as that way. And I like to think of this show as me putting my foot down and saying, come what may. But um, that's next week, which, was, uh, which will be March 2nd. And then the week after that, uh, I believe, if, if I don't get a different guest before then, I have a former professor from John MacArthur's Master's University who was fired for his theological beliefs, and he lived. It was in Israel. He lived there for 25 years, and he ended up having to move uh, back to the United States. Uh, packed up his family, five kids, uh, moved back to the United States. A and again, these people are my heroes. I, I love people like this because they stand up for what they believe in. They have skin in the game. They don't just sit around doing nothing, wishing things were better, watching football on the weekends, which I'm a big football fan, so no, no shame in watching football. But these people are my heroes because they do something about what they believe in. And I really hope that I can find people like that um, to fill the schedule with, uh, with heroes of mine, personal heroes. They may not be people you've heard of before, but I guarantee you their stories are interesting. They're fascinating. They've, they've, put, they've got skin in the game. They've made sacrifices to tell the truth. And these people should serve as, as mentors to you, as role models to you and your children. And um, I, I can't guarantee you um, every guest will always be kid-friendly. Uh, some of them may use some spicy language, um, but uh, that's okay. Everybody's got their way of talking. Uh, I talk with this fake accent. I actually have a Southern accent. You may not know that. Maybe you hear it a little bit. Um, maybe you can pick up on it, but I talk with a fake neutral accent. 
And it's something that I'm going to stop doing soon because I love my Southern accent. I love to hear other people talk with a Southern accent. And I'm not going to do it forever. I'm going to pick up my my hillbilly accent again. And I hope uh, some of you appreciate it. So, um, like I said, next Saturday, March 2nd, will be this guy named Woe, who's got a really interesting story. Um, he worked at Apple for 15 years and has got some crazy stories from there. I'm, I'm really interested to get into that and do a little tacky discussion on what that was like to work under Steve Jobs. And um, also the, the crazy stuff that happened um, getting excommunicated from his church. Um, anybody who gets excommunicated from their church is just a hero in my book. And um, anybody who gets fired from their job, a seminary, essentially a, a university that's uh, associated with a seminary, no less, um, getting fired from that for your beliefs is a hero in my book. So I can't believe I've got these two guests lined up next week and then the week after that. And there's a bunch of other people on the radar that I can't wait to talk about. So um, that's basically the format of the show and where we're going. And we're about to go to a break. And when we come back, I'm going to talk about the object of my affection, that piece of, of something in my life that's so precious to me that I would do anything I could if the house were on fire to grab it and to make sure that it didn't get destroyed in the fire. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. The Forrest Moretti Show, live. Irayath, it's an old Welsh word you don't have in the English language. It means a feeling of homesickness for a home to which you cannot return. A grief for something not only lost, but something you can't even remember what it was. It's a fitting word right now. Nations feel lost, lives devoid of meaning. Is this really the way we're supposed to live? The Tribal Instinct is a book that explains how Christians are called to live amongst their own, amongst people who speak like you, think like you, even look like you. It's not only a natural desire, but a biblical one as well. The Tribal Instinct, the sacred desire for people and place will help you to understand why we often feel her wraith, that longing for a home we cannot return, and what we can do to recover what was lost. The Tribal Instinct, a book by Forrest Moretti, available in paperback, digital, and audio versions. Today, many of the treasured institutions that made America such a great place to live are being destroyed. Riots fill the streets as cities burn. Churches sit empty, public education is in shambles, law and order are no longer respected, and nothing appears safe from disruption. Are social justice, critical race theory, and equality the key to understanding our world's ills? Or could our insistence on equality in all things actually be the root of most every problem we face? Unequaled asks an important question. What if inequality was created by God on purpose? What if our rebellion against inequality is actually the root of all sin, the very thing that is breaking the natural order of God's creation right now? Unequaled is one of my most important books, and it's available on Amazon and ForrestMoretti.com now. Something strange is happening to our faces. Have you noticed? They're becoming more crooked. Eyes don't line up with each other. Smiles are tilted. 
If you look at old photographs, you'll almost never see someone look like this. Nowadays, it's everywhere. Lazy eyes, crooked smiles. What started as a simple search to understand why this is happening turned into a two-year quest that uncovered hidden links between our crooked faces and some of the most puzzling diseases of our time. From autism to Alzheimer's, from chronic fatigue to Crohn's disease, Crooked connects the dots from the rise of metallic medicine in the 1800s to the explosion of neurological and autoimmune disorders so many suffer from today. Crooked, man-made disease explained. Get the book today in paperback, digital, and audiobook on Amazon or ForrestMoretti.com. You may have noticed all the ads for this show are about my books, my videos, or my website. That's because you are not advertising your business or service or book or video here yet. Listeners to The Forrest Moretti Show are some of the most loyal, brand-specific people you will find on the planet. By advertising on the show, you will not only increase awareness of your brand, you will gain loyal customers who may spend the rest of their lives buying your products. With a social media reach extending across hundreds of thousands, this show in streaming video, audio, and podcast formats will allow you to advertise your business or product effectively and easily. Prices are low now, but will be going up soon. So lock in your payments now and be part of the most important, the most incredible conversation on the planet, The Forrest Moretti Show, an essential part of your advertising network. Like plastic surgery for the face of your mind. The Forrest Moretti Show, live. Oh, I love the bumper music. This is a radio thing. Podcasts don't do this. They're boring to me. I love the the bumper music. You know, when you come out of a commercial break, you just pump the pump the music, and uh, it's like a a way to crossfade out of commercial land back into the show itself, and it just feels like a lot of fun and a lot of energy. And um, anyway, that's been a lot of fun to pick out those songs, and um, the the songs you'll notice over the course of the the show they change. You remember I was talking about how we start with people and then go into ideas and then. Uh, I mean, sorry, go into events and then go into ideas and, and you'll notice the bumper music sort of changes to reflect the mood as we get a little more profound, um, as we get into the deeper parts of the show. So for now, it's just disco funk and a lot of fun. Um, and those bumpers are pretty insane. The little VOs that the, I think the guy said, like plastic surgery for the face of your mind. <laughs> so um, those, those have been a lot of fun. Um, so I, pro- I, the timeline, if you saw it, the timeline said that actually the object of my affection would come at the end of the next break, but I promised you, I would say it now. So for those of you who were thinking of dropping and have stayed tuned to hear the object of my affection, I'm going to explain it now, but before I do, I must mention to you that I do have a call in number 910-807-7200. I hope that some of you can, uh, either leave a voicemail or just text me there. If you have a question or a comment you'd like me to answer, I'll do that in a little bit. And uh, I've already got a few that have come in um, 
over the past day or two, I, I reached out through my email list and asked a, a couple of people to to give me some questions. And I've got some really good ones. But if you have a burning question, uh, feel free to call. And uh, like I said, you can leave a voicemail. And and if you leave a voicemail, I'll play it. So make sure you disguise your voice so that no one knows who you are unless you want people to know who you are, in which case you may announce your name and your geographic location, uh, which is kind of old school talk radio. But uh, regardless, please feel free to leave a message or ask a question. Uh, when we have real guests on the show, this number may come in more handy than it is now because I'm talking about myself and I think it'll be more interesting to ask the new guests who you may have no idea who or what they're about. You can ask them some interesting questions. So there you have it, uh, 910-807-7200. Leave a voicemail if you want to hear your voice or just text me and I'll try and read it on the air. Okay, object of my affection. Do you have in your life an object to you that is so precious that if your house were on fire, you would run in, you would risk third-degree burns, you would risk your life to retrieve this object. Perhaps there is only one version of it in the world. Perhaps it has nostalgic value. Perhaps it's something you made. Uh, perhaps it's something your children made you, a ceramic ashtray, perhaps. Um, I remember I actually made my parents a ceramic ashtray when in art class when I was in seventh grade. And they don't smoke. I don't think they've ever smoked. Uh, but of course, um, that's what the object became uh, when I was finished with it because I couldn't figure out any other shape uh, that made sense. So it became an ashtray. And I can guarantee you that wasn't an object of their affection. That was probably something that got chunked um, when I wasn't looking. For me, one of my objects of affection, I'm going to, to mention this, is it's an electronic device, which sounds strange. I, I should say electric device. And it's, it's called a dome sound machine, D-O-H-M, D-O-H-M. It's the, the, it's the, the most popular sound machine on all of Amazon. It's a little, uh, let's say, uh, imagine a cereal bowl, upside down cereal bowl made out, made out of plastic with an actual mechanical fan inside that makes this pleasant whirring noise. And the shell of this device is designed in such a way that you can twist it and shape the sound with overlapping vents. So you can control the volume and you can control the frequency. And it is wonderful to me. It's like magic. I sleep like a baby with this device. And, and the reason I'm not embarrassed about having a sound machine is because I don't think humans were meant to sleep in silence. Silence is the equivalent of living in a house with no windows. Now imagine how silly it would be for us to build houses with no windows. Um, it would just, you just wouldn't do it. I mean, people put windows in houses from time eternal. Uh, they, not just for light, but so they could see out. But what do we do when it comes to sound? We build these perfectly hermetically sealed houses where you can't hear anything outside. Now, maybe you hear the rumble of the HVAC or the neighbor's dog barking, but there are no audio cues that life is happening outside. 
And I think that's wrong. I, I've been researching, you know, I'm kind of a tinkerer. I'm always looking for something to build or something to put on Kickstarter and fail. And one of the things that I think will really fail good on Kickstarter is this wireless microphone Bluetooth setup that you just you just sort of stick on the window and it pipes in the sound from outside. This is this is human experience 101 is you hear things. You know, people say that living in an anechoic chamber, like there, there, there are these chambers that don't have any echo at all. They're used for research. And, you know, even the floor is like this wire grid because the floor would be um, echoey if, if it didn't, if it was solid. And people, they say, you can't go in there for more than five minutes or else you'll lose your mind because it's so quiet. Now, they would never say that about a dark room, um, but they will say it about a quiet room. And so here's that's the end of my rant. I don't think humans were meant to live in quiet houses where you can't hear the outside. I always uh, open my window. The moment the weather permits, I will have the window open just so I can hear anything, cars, traffic, dogs, crickets, birds, wind, anything. Um, so that is my object of affection, my dome sound machine. Coincidentally enough, which are made right here in my hometown of Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, I'm on my second or third one. I have a friend that works at the company who gave me a t-shirt, but that's all. He never gave me anything very cool. So uh, if that number is sitting on the screen, 910-807-7200, and you have an object of your affection you would like to share with me uh, or the listeners, please feel free to let us know what that is, because I'm sure there's some interesting ones out there. All right. So as I said, this is the point in the show where we would normally have the guest come on, someone far more interesting than me. But because this is the first episode, and I'm sure there's all kinds of technical snafus that are likely happening as I speak, my family is probably texting me wildly, letting me know something sounds horrible, and I'm not checking my phone. I better check it. Uh, so uh, the guest is me. I figured there'd be some technical issues. I wanted to get them worked out. And I figured I'd use this opportunity to work out all the kinks and maybe get to know you a little better. If you don't know me, um, I am just a regular person. I am not a celebrity. I'm not a famous person. I am not um, wealthy. I am not um, well regarded by the general population. Um, I am, uh, I'm just a guy who tried to make a living. Um, and, and I, I ended up doing some interesting things along the way. Um, I got into some controversial topics. I started writing some books about it and, um, and here I am, uh, on Twitter and Spotify and Apple and YouTube and wherever, just talking about the sorts of things that matter to me. And um, so I worked in the film industry for a, a, quite a while. Uh, the film industry came to me um, as a kid, as I was eight years old or 10 years old. How old are you in sixth grade? Uh, uh, I'm sorry, fourth grade. Would that be four plus six? I suppose 10 years. Uh, when I was 10 years old, I made a science fiction film on a Super 8 camera. And for those of you who are too young to know this, it used to be nearly impossible to make anything with motion. Like there were no video cameras. You couldn't just grab a video camera. 
you had to grab a film camera and shoot it and then take the film to the drugstore. And then like six weeks later, you might get two minutes of grainy footage with no sound on it back. But undeterred as a um, 10-year-old, 11-year-old kid, I made a science fiction film that my dad helped me with. I used stop motion camera. I, I, I would, you know, record a frame, move these little Star Wars figurines, record another frame, move them again. I used the ping pong table, you know, it can fold up in half. And I used that as the, the space background. And I used uh, bags of fertilizer as the science fiction, uh, the planet surface and all these things. I even scratched frame by frame on the negative. I scratched with a little safety pen to simulate laser beams flying around. So I was really fascinated by the film industry or by film as a kid. And just by luck, it ended up coming to my town, my hometown of Wilmington. They ended up building a film studio in my town, a huge film studio with eight or nine stages and a back lot and all that. And in fact, the first film they they shot here uh, in town was called Firestarter. It was a uh, Stephen King film and it had... Drew Barrymore in it, and David Keith, and Heather Locklear, and George C. Scott. And by luck, they filmed it next door to my house, uh, quite a bit of it. And they ended up using our driveway as parking for a bunch of trailers for the actors and the makeup artist. Um, His trailer was right underneath our basketball goal. And so I'd go in there and hang out with him. And there was a scene where George C. Scott got burned really badly, and he had to create some prosthetics to simulate the burning. And I got to see him make that. And um, we got to be, I'll say friends, that's a little bit of an overstatement, but we got to be fairly friendly with Drew Barrymore and her mom, Jade. And it was just a wild experience to live in the middle of North Carolina, well, on the coast of North Carolina, and have, as a, as a film guy, like somebody who loved Star Wars and movies like that, to just have the film studio literally land in your driveway uh, was just such a surreal experience. And, um, you know, I ended up going to college and, and made, I went to Wake Forest and uh, ma- majored in religion and music. And I, I didn't really think I would end up getting involved in the film industry other than I wanted to write music for films. I wanted to be a film score. And I, I thought maybe in that way, but I ended up getting involved in the film industry. And um, a- another film came to, m- to my parents' house, uh, a TV show named Matlock, if you've ever heard of that show with Andy Griffith. Uh, that ended up filming at my parents' house, and um, I met the sound mixer, and we ended up starting a studio, and then a post-production studio, and renting video editing equipment, and I got to meet all these famous people and work on all these famous movies, and it was a lot of fun. It, it was a, it was a lot of fun. There's a lot of interesting people in the film industry. You know, nobody ends up there by accident. You you have to want to be there, and everybody in there has an interesting story. They, these are very interesting people who end up in the film industry. They're usually very intelligent people who just didn't want to work desk jobs. And so I I loved my time in the film industry. Um, I I worked on Dawson's Creek for a few years. If you've ever heard of that show, I worked on a couple of Muppet movies. Um, I worked on a bunch of stuff, usually doing sound related things, sometimes editorial related things, sometimes on set, but a lot of times either uh, in a studio or somewhere else. But um, I got to, like I said, meet a lot of interesting people. Um, I got to record a, a, a song for an Elmo, an album uh, uh, with Tony Bennett. I think it's called Elmo 
that's called The Playground uh, and, and Elmo and Tony Bennett were, were singing a song together and, and I had um, uh, Elmo in the studio with me um, singing with Tony Bennett over some digital technology live and it was, it was really amazing. So um, I got out of that, uh, you know, my wife and I moved to Los Angeles uh, to try and get more into visual effects and animation because I love that kind of stuff. And it just wasn't for us. West Coast wasn't for us in general. Um, Los Angeles wasn't for us. The big cities weren't for us. Um, there were all kinds of things about that experience that weren't for us. But um, we we do, we have a lot of good memories from being out there. It just wasn't for us. We, we are definitely um, small town Southerners who prefer uh, less traffic, who prefer people who talk like us and are kind. Uh, well, it's not to say Angelinos aren't kind, but you know, the, uh, the saying about Southerners, having that sort of hospitality is certainly true for my wife, for me, I hope. And um, anyway, um, so uh, now I basically, I've written a lot of books, but that's not really how I pay the bills. I do a lot of software and technology, and um, I've been doing that for quite a while. And in fact, all the music that you hear in this show, like it's uh, all, all that stuff. I wrote some software to do that for me because it's kind of complicated to have this stuff kind of randomly play at certain times and to be able to trigger it manually if you want. And for me to be able to look at a screen and see when a commercial break's coming up and all that. So I was lucky enough to have some time uh, over a couple of weekends to write some software to do that. But I, I do like technology in that way. I joke that I'm the Amish 2.0. I joke that I am, uh, you know, like the Amish, uh, but with electricity and minivans. Um, but I do use technology. Um, I don't want to always use technology. And I would argue that we're probably going to have to move away from technology at some point soon um, because of what's coming. Uh, we can talk about that more later. But... Um, Anyway, that's a little bit about myself. Um, a lot of people um, find the story of uh, how I met my wife interesting in that um, I saw her at a, in a church service uh, one morning and um, I saw her in the lobby and, and she was like a vision from heaven. And, and we were married three months later. It's like, that's the story. <laughs> There's a lot of interesting things that happened between the, the beginning and the end of that. Uh, but given that this is our 25th anniversary, which makes me feel really old. She's not old. She's very young. Uh, but I feel very old to be 25 years married. But um, I, I did see her in the lobby of the church I went to. I'd never seen her before. And um, I was actually at the early service because we had a soccer game. We played with the, the Mexican guys um, you know, they had to play earlier cause they had to open up their restaurant. And so we had an early game and I had my umbros and my shin guards under my pants. And, um, I saw her in the lobby and, and I was just completely smitten. And, um, I, I had to track down her phone number and it, it took about four phone calls, you know, hopping from one person to the next to try and figure out who this person was. And, and I can remember when I finally got to the person who knew her directly, you know, I was just like, does she have a boyfriend? Does she have a boyfriend? I was just really just couldn't get that out of my mouth fast enough. And so um, the answer was I, she wasn't sure. She didn't think she did. And um, I ended up calling her. And um, anyway, we went on a date 
And, um, you know, she had no idea who I was. This was, you can imagine, having to pull all the charm I could possibly muster to talk her into a date with having no clue who I was. And um, we went on a date, and then we went on another date, and then uh, I think maybe on our third date, uh, we decided to get married. And um, that sounds very crazy, and I don't recommend this for anyone. Uh, If any of my uh, friends or family are listening to this call and you're thinking about getting married, I don't recommend this approach, but this is how it happened for me and my wife, and it worked. We're coming up on our 25th anniversary and um, loving every second of it. So um, a lot of people don't know this about me, but they ask me, um, they've heard that I was the subject of a documentary, and um, they don't believe that when I tell them that I was the subject of a documentary. They, they think I'm joking because I'm a, I kind of joke. I'm a, I like to tell jokes, I suppose. And people, I, I may say, hey, yeah, uh, you could watch my documentary about me, and they think I'm joking. But the reality is I actually was the subject of a documentary. This was a, an hour-long documentary on Discovery Health Channel, which I'm not sure if that channel still runs, but... Um, I had been doing some work for the Duggars, if you remember that show, the, the 14 kids. And, um, I think they got up to 20 or 21 and, um, I did some work for them and John and Kate plus eight and some of those shows and the producers would go to eat lunch with me and they would say, you are the most picky adult we've ever met. And I would say, yeah, I, I believe it. I've never met anyone pickier than I am. And uh, eventually, after a few lunches, uh, I, I guess some of the producers got together and said, let's do a show about you. And of course, that was a whole nother level I wasn't prepared for. But they said, we can fix you through the show. We will be able to fix you and make it so you don't eat like that, which I was thrilled because I hate eating like that. I hate that I'm a picky eater. It's It's been a lifetime of trouble. I always tell people I'd spend tens of thousands of dollars on anything, surgery, whatever, if it could cure me of this strange phenomenon that I, I experience every day. So they ended up doing a documentary about me. They followed me for a year. They took me, uh, we lived in Raleigh or Durham, North Carolina at the time, and they took me to the eating disorder clinic at Duke, um, which had the, the head of the clinic specialized in children with food aversion and food aversion is children who just won't eat anything. And I suppose I was one level removed from that because I wouldn't eat anything that a four-year-old wouldn't normally eat. If it was, um, if it had pepper on it, I wouldn't eat it. If it had more than three toppings on it, I wouldn't eat it. If it was cooked and a vegetable, I wouldn't eat it. it there was very few foods I would eat and they had to be prepared a certain way. And, and like I said, I was embarrassed about it. I hated it. I was hoping that the show would cure me of this problem. And um, so they followed me around for a year. They sent me to a hardcore CrossFit trainer um, who made me throw up um, <laughs> on the rowing machine. And uh, it was a lot of fun. And uh, fast forward to today, and I'm, I'm really not that much better. I, I, am, I am somewhat better. I'll eat things like chicken now. And um, I eat maybe less peanut butter than I used to. Uh, maybe uh, a few things are better. 
but the show was was fun and it was interesting to do that and um i don't know that that's basically my life i do software now i write books i i quit a year and a half ago uh i quit my job and i wrote four books i wrote um the tribal instinct i wrote uh super spreader which is a novel i wrote um a book about our denomination, the Britarian denomination. There's one other. What is that? I can't remember. Uh, I can't remember what the... Oh, Sorrow of the Godmakers. It's another sort of uh, theological Christian book I wrote, Sorrow of the Godmakers. Um, so I, I do like writing books. Um, I usually just do a bunch of research and, and just read and take notes, and then it just explodes out of my brain. Um You'll hear that one of the commercials about Moth in the Iron Lung. That's what happened with Moth in the Iron Lung. I'd, I'd heard that polio had something to do with DDT. Uh, I'd heard that for years, but I, I you know, kind of started looking it up, and I, I read that DDT didn't really uh, come into civilian use until after World War II. But I'm sure you know that polio started well before that, started in the 1890s. And so that led me on a quest. Well, if DDT has something to do with polio, then why did it start in 1890 uh, and not after World War II? And after doing a bunch of research and tracking down where the first polio outbreaks were, which were New England, northern, northeastern United States, I discovered that uh, there was a pesticide that was invented in 1890s in the northeastern United States to combat a invasive species of moth that had begun to invade the northeastern United States in the 1890s. And that's where the book, The Moth in the Iron Lung, came, came from. I had sort of happened across this coincidence um, that a new pesticide called lead arsenate was being generated in the exact place and time that polio was first seen. It was just something I couldn't believe when I started reading about it. It felt so obvious that if DDT did indeed have something to do with polio, it felt obvious that lead arsenate was also the cause for the original outbreak of polio. And that book just exploded out of me. I had done so much research and so much note-taking that I, I wrote it, I think it was about two months, uh, maybe two and a half months. And, you know, some people take a long time to write a book, and that book just got written very quickly because I had so much information in my brain uh, when it came time to write it it was it was very easy to tell it and um, that book has ended up being my most popular book um, some of the other books I think are very interesting they're equally interesting they're probably a little better written uh, because I've gotten better over time but um, for better I won't say or worse but just for better that that is my most popular book it's the one most people find out about me through is the moth in the iron lung um, because it is a fascinating story. Polio is the foundational myth for vaccine uh, science. And um, I felt like once you remove the foundation of vaccine lore, which is that polio vaccines saved us from certain destruction, I realized that uh, vaccine themselves would come crumbling down. So enough about me. That is the end of this second segment. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to start getting into some more interesting things, some more detailed, more profound things about the events that are taking place around us and that shape our lives. The Forrest Moretti Show. 
live. Polio, the scourge of the 20th century. One of the most nightmarish diseases ever to strike the planet, killing some, crippling others. Its most frequent victim, children. Its defeat through vaccines, considered the most important scientific achievement in human history. What if the story you learned about polio was wrong? What if the story of polio was something much different than you were taught? What if all the iron lungs and all the crippled children weren't simply the result of a virus gone wrong, but something much more nefarious, something man-made? For the first time ever, the moth in the iron lung reveals the incredible story of how polio came to be, an unlikely sequence of events so profoundly disturbing, you'll question everything you were ever told. Get the moth in the iron lung now on Amazon or ForrestMoretti.com. In the past few years, I've written 16 books. Books like Moth in the Iron Lung, Crooked, Unvaccinated, Red Pill Gospel. I don't write books because I'm bored or want money. I write books when I've discovered something new and get really excited about it. Like with the moth in the Iron Lung, I made a connection no one seemed to have made. A coincidence so incredible that book just exploded out of my brain. Here's what Catherine Austin Fitz of the Solari Report says. Every time I think I'm no longer naive, I discover once again how little I really know. This happens every time I read one of Forrest Moretti's books. It's like taking a can opener to the mind. Wow, I hope you'll consider one of my books if you haven't read them yet. I promise they'll give you a clearer understanding of the world around us than you ever thought possible. Moth, Tribal Instinct, Red Pill Gospel, they're all available on Amazon and my website at forestmoretti.com. The year was 1872, and fighting from the Civil War had nearly torn the United States apart. The young country had survived, but a new one was taking shape directly within its borders. Along the rift of earth and rock they called Appalachia. A hardy group of Nordic Americans were able to carve out a slice of the land they'd come to love and formed their own republic. A place connected not only by tribal bonds of kinship, but spiritual ties of their Christian faith. Trouble would come. Strangers from strange lands. With over 400 stunning photographs, Appalachia is an account of the men and women who stopped at nothing to defend their faith, their family, and the land they called home. Appalachia, a photographic novel by Forrest Moretti. Where can I find a simple, honest guide to all the pediatric vaccines doctors recommend? That's a question I used to hear all the time. All the books out there were huge, but I wanted something easy to understand, something that went through each vaccine one by one and explained the pros and cons. I compiled all this information into a book called Vax Baby, The Curious Parent's Guide to Pediatric Vaccines. But I also wanted to tell you it's available in video form, over 50 of them, for premium members of my website. The Vax Baby series covers every pediatric vaccine from birth through late teens, even those recommended while you're pregnant. Many other questions are covered. Should family members get vaccines before the baby arrives? Should I give my baby Tylenol before their shots? If you've been wanting a complete, truthful explanation for pediatric vaccines, Vax Baby is the way to go. 
VaxBaby on my website at forestmoretti.com. Putting the popular in populist. It's the Forest Moretti Show, live. All right, welcome back. We are now into the second hour uh, with no guest. It's just me. I am your host, Forrest Moretti. This is the Forrest Moretti Show, episode 01. The reason for this lack of guest, I suppose, is this is sort of a technical rehearsal. I figured things would go wrong. I'm guessing they have, and I don't know about them yet. But regardless, um, I do see a red light which I think means something's recording. Red is usually good in the recording world. It means something's recording. Um, I'm here to entertain you. I'm here to cheer you up. I'm here to bring you down. Um, I'm here to do all those things. Um, I'm hoping to have some really interesting guests over the next few months as we approach the end of our nation's history. Um, I, I say that half jokingly, half not. Um, but I do think it will be interesting to see what happens um, of our nation in the next few months. Uh, will there be an election? You know, can we actually make it that far? Will, will something come up to derail the election, which is essentially what happened um, in a way last time, I suppose? Um, all sorts of craziness. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people are concerned about the future. And as I said at the beginning of the show, I'm, I'm actually optimistic because I, I think that it's time for something new. Now, I'm, I'm not going to be a revolutionary. I'm not going to be uh, um, advocating revolution or violence or anything like that because I think it'll happen naturally. It, now, hopefully it'll happen peacefully, um, but... Uh, these things tend to not go that way, but uh, it certainly won't be me because I think our country is due for a reset. Uh, as I mentioned, we are at the end of our 250-year lifespan. Most empires don't last much longer than that. Um, some of the end-of-empire stages involve raiding the treasury. That's almost... Uh, a, a given whenever a empire is toward the end of its life, whatever wealth it has remaining starts to get raided and taken by anyone um, that has access to it before the currency collapses. And whether that's happening right now or not, I don't know for sure, but it certainly seems like it. Um, even, I don't know, eight, 10 years ago, you'll remember uh, there was this strange $400 million money drop to Iraq. I think that was when Obama was president and Hillary Clinton was secretary of state. And it was a strange, like, we're giving Iraq $400 million. Um, why? Well, um, I don't know. No one can really make any sense of it. Um, I'm sure there was maybe some story given, but whatever it was, it certainly felt pretty fishy. And uh, in the time that's elapsed, lots of other money has flowed to lots of other countries. And you can guarantee... Um, there's probably some kickbacks going on there. There is some raiding of the treasury that happens. 
And um, it's just one of the signs that our nation is coming to its end. And I'm okay with that. You know, I, I was a extremely patriotic kid. I did the Pledge of Allegiance. My heart swelled with pride. Every 4th of July, our church, the church I grew up in, would have a band, a brass band, and they would dedicate the service to patriotic hymns. And, and I would, my eyes would well up when America the Beautiful would play. And, you know, oh, beautiful for spacious skies and, and those hymns, my country tis of thee. I was so patriotic. I, I really was. I, I was so proud of America. I, I really thought this is the, the greatest country that's ever been in existence. And what what a blessing that I get to experience that. And um, I I felt that for a long time. And, and, and it started to change. Um, unfortunately, you know, as, as I went down the vaccine rabbit hole, um, it, it, I started to go down some other rabbit holes and the stories that we were told as children, I started to realize weren't true. You know, just like the polio story wasn't exactly true. There were some things about American history that weren't exactly true. Um, there were some things about the wars we fought in that weren't exactly true. And, um, I'm not, I don't believe every conspiracy theory. I have plenty of conspiracy theories that I don't believe in. And, uh, but it, uh, America did begin to lose its luster with me maybe six, eight years ago. And the, and the last few years have certainly not helped in any way. Um, given that the rating of the treasury is well underway, I, given that this country has become too big, given that we have no effective border anymore. Our military seems to be incapable of projecting power. Uh, our, our economy, our the currency, the U.S. dollar that was the world's uh, reserve currency seems to be fading. It, it only feels to be a matter of time. And I get that some of you may frown upon that and say, no, you, you have to hope. You have to keep pushing. And, you know, there, there's hope that... Um, you know, maybe we can win an election and, you know, with enough this or that. And I'm, I'm over it. I, I to be honest with you, I'm over it. I, I don't think, uh, I'll vote in the next election and, and maybe we can talk about that. Who will I vote for? Who do I think is going to win the presidential election? And I'll vote. I'm not completely apathetic to American politics, but I'm, I'm post America. I'm interested in what happens next. America has an expiration date and we're well past it. So uh, retail politics, as I've heard someone mention it, is not interesting to me. We can talk about Trump or Biden or Democrats or Republicans and all these sorts of things. But it's kind of boring to me, to be honest with you. It's boring because it doesn't matter. It, it may have a small influence on this or that gun law or, or this or that vaccine law. But the reality is uh, the die has been cast. America has passed its expiration date. And there's far more interesting discussions to be had about what comes next. What does the next America look like? And not only America, what does nationhood itself look like next? Because, you know, World history has sort of been a story of empires. You know, before that, there were there were tribes, there were cultures, and occasionally, you know, one of these 
or a bunch of tribes would gain enough power and enough um, alliances that they would form a nation and they would rise above the others and dominate. And this is sort of the Roman Empire and, uh, you know, others like that. And these kind of came and went. And I suppose you could sort of classify the last 500, 400, 500, 600 years as the, the age of, not of empire, but the age of nations. And, and we had nations with, you know, borders and, and, you know, they'd go to war and this and that. But in general, there was, there was more stability. And, you know, America came along and, and did some really neat things that um, hadn't been tried or hadn't been tried successfully, at least, and created some really amazing things about our country uh, that, that still uh, the envy of the world to today, because this is where immigrants want to come, even despite all of our flaws. Uh, so certainly we did some things right. But nations have never formed from consensus, um, nations have never formed from disparate people groups who get together and decide, hey, let's start a nation. Um, you know, p- people think of America as the great melting pot, and it is, uh, they have this sort of civic nationalism, which is America is a country of ideals and it's a country of shared ideas, and we all believe in freedom, and that's what, you know, America's built upon. And, and that's not really true. Um, America wasn't built like that. America, you know, was essentially a Protestant Christian idea. This was people who left England and some other European countries and decided uh, they wanted to form a new nation based on some very specific ideas. Now, you know, some people say, well, there were deists, you know, among the founders of the country. And yeah, maybe so. Maybe they weren't exactly the way you define Christian. But at the end of the day, that was their general worldview. They wanted to create a nation that honored God that gave people, you know, liberty, pursuit of happiness, private property. And then, of course, they came up with the Bill of Rights and free speech and um, guns and all these sorts of things. But that was a very specific group of people. They, they were all, as far as I know, they were all Caucasian or Euro, whatever you want to call them, European, white, I suppose. They were all white. Christians and 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 specifically Protestants. I don't think there were any Catholics among them. And they formed America. Now, of course, they had these ideas that everybody seemed to like in terms of freedom, but that's how the country was created. It was created out of that. You know, you, you hear the term Judeo-Christian values. It wasn't Judeo-Christian. It was just Christian. There was there was no Catholic. There was no Jewish influence. Very little, at least. And it was essentially a Christian nation. And so my question is, what happens now because uh, technology has grown to the point where we have the potential for problems? And and what do I mean by that? Well, um, we have all kinds of races and cultures and religions and languages all mingling together in the same place, in the same cities, counties, states. And what happens when it comes time to form a new nation, a new country? Um, This has never been tried before. As far as I know, uh, I'm sure there's some historians amongst 
you who may correct me on this with some obscure uh, story, but as far as I know, this has never been tried before. A, a nation has never formed spontaneously out of a disparate people group, meaning different races, different uh, religious faiths, different backgrounds, different languages. And we are essentially mixed so thoroughly that it, it feels dangerous. It, it feels like something bad may happen when when this time comes, because typically uh, people don't get along very well. I don't know if you've noticed, um, but uh, people will find any reason not to get along, and it's not hard. Uh, you know, you may be the nicest, kindest person on the planet, and you may have a sign out front of your house that says "Hate has no home here." But the reality is humans don't get along. We, we tend to argue. I mean, I, I say all the time, I'm worse than racist because I have people probably in my own family that, you know, I don't really enjoy hanging out with and I'd probably rather not hang out with them. So, you know, what hope do we have? And I, most of you should be, I, you, you'll be like that if you're honest with yourself. Now, maybe you have the perfect family. I doubt it. But if we're honest with ourselves, it's like, it feels hopeless in a way for everybody to get along when everyone is worse than racist, because I can guarantee you there are people in their own families who they would rather not be with. So you bring all the nuance and differences and profound cultural differences of not speaking the same language natively, not believing in the same God faithfully, um, all the biological differences that come with racial and ethnic differences you can imagine um, that is planting the seed for conflict. When it comes time to things are unstable, there is no governing authority. We need to come up with something that we all agree upon. And what will that be when there's that incredible mixing bowl there? What will it look like? And I'm, I'm, you know, I, I say I'm optimistic about the future, but this is somewhere that I am fearful. Uh, I'll just go ahead and be honest with you. I'm fearful of this because I don't know how to unwind what's been done peacefully. It's never been done before. I don't know how a new nation gets formed when there are so many different people who currently get along basically because there is food at the grocery store and there is fake money on their plastic cards. And the minute you lose either of those two things or both of them, the minute the grocery stores are empty and the minute their plastic cards don't buy, any, buy them things anymore, all of this fake camaraderie and uh, you know, America is a nation of ideals and we all believe in freedom, all that will go to pot. It will instantly disappear. And you will see uh, allegiances forming. You will see looting and violence and all these other things very quickly. And people will real quickly discover who their friends are, who their foes are. And uh, I don't look forward to that. I, I, I really don't. I, I wish that things could be resolved peacefully um, America, as it stands now, is too big. This is this is just there. There's no way around it. I mean, this is this is the problem with technology, with modernity in general. Is 
everything's too big. Um, our country is too big. There are too many different people groups, too many different belief systems, too many different desires and wants and needs to successfully have a coherent country. It's just too big. Um, if I, I think about all the time, what would I do if I were starting a new country? What would I do to prevent what's happened to America? And I, I don't, I think 250 years is a pretty good run between you and me. I don't know if, if anyone, if you've started a nation and you've made it 250 years, you should be pretty proud of yourself. But how would you prevent this from happening? Well, I don't know. I think you put a cap on the nation size. I think you figure out a way to where essentially states or territories or provinces are created on the fly automatically uh, when a certain threshold is met. And that's just a given. You just do it. It's it's part of the fabric of governance is that you never get above a certain size. And I can't imagine the founding fathers had any idea that they would go from the you know, two, 300,000, 1 million, 2 million to the whatever we have now, 350 million people here of every um, make and model of human being. I can't imagine they would ever think that we would have held together as long as we have. And um, I'm glad that we've held together. Um, I'm also, uh, like I said, expecting that we won't hold together forever. I think um, soon, I think the end of America will come soon. Um, but, uh, the, the next the next nation what will it look like i think it will it will it will be smaller um i think it's likely to feature uh religious faith or language or um race or ethnicity i think it's likely to feature those things as commonalities um we like to think of that as passe we like to think of um you know uh, nations built upon a, a common faith or a common race, uh, you know, that's sort of old school and, and people don't do that anymore. We're, we're beyond that. Uh, the reality is we're not beyond that. We're, we're temporarily able to do it because we've had a peaceful society with a strong economy. And like I said, because the food is in the fridge and the fake money is on the plastic cards, we've been able to fake it. But once you remove those things, the the reality of who people trust and who they're willing to align themselves with will become very clear very quickly. Now, I don't wish it were like that. I, I don't want that, but it is the reality of the world we live in, and I accept that. And I think accepting reality is going to be one of the hallmark traits of those who make it. You know, I don't know if you've seen the the saying or the meme that floats around the internet that says, not going to make it in GMI, not going to make it, um, or going to make it. And those people who are going to make it are the people who can recognize reality more quickly than others, those people who can deal with reality and don't lose their minds that the world doesn't work the way you wish it did. Those people who don't lose their mind when they realize there are other people out there who hate them or who hate you. You may love everyone. Hate may have no home where you live, but I guarantee you there are places down the street from you where hate found a home and it's your next door neighbor and they probably hate you uh, for your faith. They may hate you for your Southern accent. They may hate you for your Northern accent. Um, 
No comment there. They may hate you for your um, your race or your ethnicity. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons to hate, and humans do it. And I think the sooner you can prepare yourself for this is a reality of human nature, and we have temporarily been able to stave it off because of a robust economy and plenty of food in the fridge, um, I think the sooner you can prepare yourself for what that might look like in the future, the better off you'll be. So um, this is why um, you know the, den- the den- denomination I belong to uh, believes that tribes are likely to be the future. Now, I don't know if they'll be always be the future. I think they will be the transitional nationhood, if you will, that um, comes out of the end of the uh, age of nations, which I, I think we're about to see. I, I don't think America is the only nation that's going to fall. I, I think lots of nations will fall. I think um, a lot of the nations like uh, China, coincidentally enough, China and um, Russia, uh, these sort of homogenous nations which have maintained their identity, uh, you know, despite all their their faults, they have maintained a really strong identity and I think they'll be okay. I think they'll make it through it. Uh, the countries that have insisted on diversity of, of everything, diversity of belief and religion and every other thing, I, I don't think they'll make it. I think they'll fall apart, that they're not going to make it. They are NGMI, not going to make it. And I believe, um, like I said, the denomination I belong to believes that tribes are going to be the way out of this. They are going to be people groups you live amongst uh, of people who are just like you. And this may include your native language. This may include uh, your faith, of course. And this may include your race or ethnicity. These are all things that have defined nationhood for all of human history. You know, it's only in the last hundred years or so that we've sort of monkeyed around with this and thought that um, everybody can get along um, no matter what differences they may have. So um, I, I think one of the things in terms of preparing for the future is uh, thinking about finding your people. And, and I started talking about this a year or two ago, maybe three years ago. I started talking about finding your people, find your tribe. And, and you've probably seen that on the internet. That's really my book, The Tribal Instinct. That's what it's about. It's about finding your people. And, and there are Christians out there who would say that that's wrong, that you know everybody should get along and, and love is colorblind and love you know conquers all and all these things. And I firmly disagree with that. I think that's complete hogwash. I think human beings um, are sinful people and we should do whatever we can to get along with um, those people who are closest to us. And we should find those people who make getting along with them as easy as possible. So um, tribes are essentially an attempt to live a peaceful life. They are an attempt to maximize the chance that you will live peacefully with those amongst you. And um, this may involve finding people who have the same faith as you, um, having the same specific theology as you. Um, People like to think that Christians can all just get along. You know, we need unity in the church and uh, we shouldn't argue about these things. You know, we shouldn't argue about should uh, babies be baptized or is predestination a real thing or 
Is the Trinity a real thing or any of these things? You know, we shouldn't argue about that. But my take on that is, yeah, we should. We, 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 should, we should split up. We should argue and split up uh, because the church, just like the nation, is too big. Churches are too big. They don't need to be that big. They need to be smaller. Um, companies need to be smaller. Um, families need to be bigger. But uh, companies should be smaller. Churches should be smaller. And certainly nations should be smaller. Everything's too big. And I think, you know, you talk about the Great Reset and all these sort of global cabal things that go on. There is the notion that there's going to be more control and more global agenda. And this is one of the reasons I'm sort of optimistic about the future, because I know that this is not going to happen. The, the, the populist will, will win. They will always win. The technological sophistication that will provide for global control will not last forever. It will fall apart. Um, there's just not enough intelligence in the world to maintain the technology that we've built. And, and I'll talk about that later, maybe if we get into artificial intelligence. But the reality is um, they will they will certainly do more than they're doing now. There will certainly be more overreach, more mandates, more laws, and all these sorts of things. But at the end of the day, the, the globalist agenda will fail because it's too big. It's too ambitious. And at the end of the day, human beings are human and they will fight for what they believe in. They, they will be pushed and pushed until they get to a certain point and eventually uh, they will break. It may take a long time to get to that point, but eventually humans will fight back. So, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that, and I'm going to answer some of your questions coming up in the next break. Feel free to leave a message at 910-807-7200. We'll see you on the other side of this next break. The Forrest Moretti Show, live. Thomas Finch, a rebellious doctor, subject of a global manhunt, wanted for the murder of one of the most beloved figures in public health. When a miraculous healing technology is unveiled, the doctor is promised a deal he can't refuse. They'll save his daughter's life if he'll turn himself in. The doctor, already suspicious of a worldwide vaccination program, begins to believe another, more nefarious plan is underway. His race to stop it, frustrated by a heart condition he fears could kill him at any moment. Best-selling author Forrest Moretti has created a stunning thriller that pits the lone doctor, hated by many for his unorthodox views, against the global powers that seek to control. Super Spreader is a wild ride from page one all the way to the thrilling end. Hello friends, Forrest Moretti here. Years ago when I first realized we were being lied to about many things, most notably vaccines, I started making videos on Facebook and YouTube calling out how we were being harmed. My incredible opinion, they were called. You might remember seeing some of them because they were shared far and wide with millions of views. Facebook and YouTube didn't think very highly of them and most of them have been removed from the internet at this point, until now. All the My Incredible Opinion episodes, both seasons of them, almost 200 videos, are available for premium members on my website, forestmoretti.com. This includes the polio videos everyone seemed to love, 
the organic vaccine video, and the Brady Bunch measles episode people are always asking me about. So if you've been wanting to see them again, they're all easy to be found on my website at forrestmoretti.com. And that is my incredible opinion. In the late 1800s, a new disease arrived in North America that claimed the lives of children everywhere. After trial and error, a vaccine was developed that could help, but the shot was dangerous and many parents refused it. In 1932, a new ingredient was added, an ingredient never before tried on humans. Throughout the country, children began to receive it, and within a year, a new mental disorder, unknown to anyone, began to appear. It affected toddlers, mostly boys. Children lost the ability to speak and would take little interest in any other humans, even their parents. The autism vaccine is the story of two of these children and why modern medicine's attempts to explain what happened have come up short. The autism vaccine, the story of modern medicine's greatest tragedy, available on forestmoretti.com and Amazon. Why are more parents having unvaccinated children? Hey folks, Forrest Moretti here. When I first heard people weren't vaccinating their children, I was shocked. I thought vaccines were the most incredible medical invention of all time, a miracle of science and technology that saved the lives of untold millions. I couldn't believe seemingly intelligent, educated parents were purposefully skipping vaccines for their children, and not just some of the shots, all of them. Fast forward a few years later, and I wrote a short book about the most amazing things I learned as I went from hardcore vaccine enthusiast to the board-certified anti-vaxxer I am today, anti-every single vaccine ever made. This book is called Unvaccinated, and it's short, easy to share, and is a great way to introduce your friends and family to the concept of natural immunity and how our bodies are not only well-equipped to handle infection, but how they thrive on it as well. Unvaccinated on Amazon or ForrestMoretti.com. Cover your ears. This show bites harder than Mike Tyson. It's the Forrest Moretti Show, live. All right, welcome back. Hope you're enjoying this. I know I am. It's been a long time since I've been able to speak my mind. I've been suffering in silence. My wife, my poor wife, has been suffering listening to me talk and ramble and complain and then dream and think of a better life. And I'm here to tell you about it because I think uh, there's a way out of this mess. Uh, I, I don't know if you will be with me on that journey, but I certainly hope you will as long as you can. Um, I'm, I'm on a mission to find my people. Uh, I, I know a lot of you are too. We, we, live in, we live in a strange time where we don't have any sense of people or place. We've been removed from that. That's what The Tribal Instinct, the book I wrote, is about. This thing called Horaeth. It's this Welsh term, which means this sadness, this longing for a place. You can't even remember what it was. And my opinion is it's, it's this longing for people and place. It's this, this thing we instinctively know is there and should feel, and we, we just know it's missing. And it, it's sort of a sadness that we all have. So 
All right. Uh, I'll talk about that more later. But as promised, one of the segments that uh, we will come out of breaks with is this thing called Signs of Decline. Not Signs of the Time, but Signs of Decline. Now, perhaps in future episodes, I'll have a nice theme song to play. Um, I don't have one for now, but you can imagine some peppy song, even though we're in the uh, hour and a half mark of the show and we are starting to get a little more profound and a little deep. I want to talk to you about signs of decline. I'm sure you've seen these everywhere. Have you? You know, the collective IQ of the country is dropping like a rock. I suppose the entire world. Now, whether it's coronavirus vaccines, coronavirus infections, TikTok, or perhaps Velveeta shells and cheese macaroni, I don't know. But whatever it is, the collective IQ of the country, the world at large is dropping. I don't know if any of you ever go to drive throughs but here in the South, I suppose they're everywhere by now, we have Chick-fil-A's. And Chick-fil-A's used to be the gold standard of drive throughs I mean, you could go look across the street at the McDonald's and they'd have three cars there and it'd take them an hour to clear them. But you go to the Chick-fil-A and there'd be lines wrapped around the building, 30 cars long, and they would just run through like a hot knife through butter. And I've noticed they don't do that anymore. There's chaos even at the Chick-fil-A drive through and you know things are bad when the Chick-fil-A drive through has chaos because they used to run that place like a top. So signs of decline, I see them everywhere. People wandering the aisles of Michael's Arts and Crafts looking for some ribbon, I, I don't know, looking for scrapbooking material. I mean, I, I suppose scrap, any of you scrapbook, f forgive me. Um, I think scrapbooking is a perfectly fine hobby. Um, it's not for me, though. My sign of decline, you might think I am going to tell you that a sign of decline would be the, uh, the adolescent girls in Spain being paraded down the street in naughty leather outfits um, by adults for a pride parade. You might think that I would I would say that that's a sign of decline. Um, it is, but it's not what I'm here to tell you about. The sign of decline that I'm here to tell you about is people turning off a good song midway through. That really, really bugs me. Does that bug you? Do you know what I'm talking about? If there's a really good song, you let it finish. You honor it. You don't stop it halfway through like it's a piece of trash. You let it finish. Just today, I was down at the boat marina. This is where I normally work and do my thinking and writing. I just sit in my truck where all the people put their boats in. This guy came in with his boat, had his windows down. He was blasting. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. You know that song? Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. You know what I'm talking about? Real soulful. And then it gets to that part in the middle. And I know, I know, I know, I know. And, you know, it goes on and on. It's like this real long thing. It's the biggest buildup uh, besides Phil Collins in the air tonight. You know, when the drum fill, when the drums kick in, like that's the biggest sort of kick in of all time. This one is a close second to me. It's after that break with the I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. And it just goes on. This guy 
parks his car right beside me, and right before the thing kicks in, he turns it off. I mean, we were this close to the resolution of this epic break that the guy says, I know, like 20 times. And I just thought, what kind of twisted world do we live in where a guy is going to turn off, ain't no sunshine when she's gone, right before the kick-in? It's just, I was so depressed. And, and I almost asked him if he could just finish it. But I, I think he was already kind of looking at me weird, probably because the way I was dressed or I was sitting in the, you know, the passenger side of a truck doing, you know, writing on a laptop. So I didn't say anything to him. But that's not, that's not right, y'all. That's just not right. You, you got to let it finish, especially a song like that. You just got to let it finish. Please don't do that. I mean, the Chick-fil-A lines bug me. The, the Spanish weirdo, what in the world are they doing with the girls and the outfits? And the, it's like, what is happening? But please let the songs finish. Can we just agree on that? If it's a good song, you can be late. The, the boat doesn't have to be in the water right now. I mean, it really doesn't have to be. Just let the song finish and, and the world will all be happier. I mean, everybody will benefit from that. So that's my sign of the decline for today. Uh, if you have one, please feel free to message me at 910-807-7200 and I will consider reading it on the air if it's something interesting or funny or offensive. Um, all right, I'm going to take some caller questions right now because this is a, a live show and people have messaged me yesterday. <laughs> uh, maybe at some point we'll have some live call-ins, uh, but for now... It's um, questions that people have asked, and I want to honor um, their effort to message me through the, the number and uh, answer their questions. Um, uh, first person who responded to me, um, one of the questions they said is, what's up with the transgender stuff? What is happening? Um, <laughs> wow, that's a, a really loaded question. Um and it's a complex question. I think there's a lot of things going on with that. I could spend an entire episode on that. Um, in fact, there's a book. I'm trying to remember. I read it. I'm looking up in my Kindle library as we speak. Irreversible Damage. I don't know if you've read that book. Um, it's a book about, uh, it's by Abigail Schreier. And it's about the transgender craze. Um, so what is going on with that? I, I, I'm not going to spend more than two minutes on this because it's a long topic. It's, it's a, it's a tragic topic really. That's not funny. I, I, if you're not someone who's affected by it, it's easy to laugh because it does feel so ridiculous um, on the surface, but under the surface, for those of you who have uh, suffered from it yourself or maybe have children or loved ones who are going through it, it is terrible. It's, it's a very, very difficult situation. And I don't want to make light of it. Um, any more than I already have. But so what is going on with it? Well, I think you have two or three things going on. Um, one thing is vaccines are really screwing people's hormones up. I, I know this for a fact. They are really, really messing with people's hormones. Um, there's a part, uh, you know, a lot of my research into vaccines and autism and these sorts of things uh, revolves around the brainstem. And the cranial nerves, which project out of the brainstem. And the brainstem is this center of your brain where when you get terrified of something, 
it signals from help. It signals for help from white blood cells, and white blood cells tend to accumulate wherever help is needed. And unfortunately, when you get vaccines, those white blood cells have typically picked up aluminum or whatever other horrible ingredients in vaccines. Uh, my my focus has been on aluminum, and that aluminum gets carried via the white blood cells to wherever is asking for help. And unfortunately, um, vaccines for toddlers, you know, let's say 12 to 36 months, usually involve terrifying experiences, experiences of being immobilized or restrained. And that is the trigger that um, tends to cause autism. It tends to cause all these cranial nerve problems that you see in the crooked faces, you know, these crooked smiles and people with eyes that don't line up. Another thing that happens is there are um, uh, nerves that project out of that area, which trigger hormone production. And um, they've they've done scientific studies on this. I'm, 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 this is not like tenfold hot stuff. They they know this, and in fact, they can affect uh, the. I'm gonna just. I'm trying to think of how to say this sort of politely. Let's say the mating ritual of of rodents. They can affect it by. Um, doing, they call it an ablation, like essentially damaging a very, very particular part, a tiny little part of the brainstem. They can affect something as specific as the mating ritual uh, of rodents. And it, what it does is it, it screws up their hormone production in a certain way. And this is what I believe ADD and ADHD is. These are essentially um, your brain from damage in the spinal cord and the, in the spinal column and the, uh, brainstem has caused the overproduction of certain hormones, which make kids feel extremely anxious. And when you feel anxious, you have to get rid of that anxiety and, and it, and it's built into the human DNA, um, to run or to scream or to jump. And, and you see it in a lot of flapping hands. This is essentially what they call stemming. Uh, my understanding, my belief is it's not stimulating. It is the human uh, nature's desire to get rid of too much um, anxiety through a, a improper hormone production that's caused by vaccines. So all that being said, you can trigger hormone production in such a way that it messes people up. I mean, it genuinely messes people up and they have problems. They may have um, gender dysphoria. They may have um, all kinds. I'm not going to get into the details of it because it's kind of feels kind of crude uh, in general. And, and it's also it's just it's sad. It's, it's really sad. Um, at the same time, there's there's another phenomenon going on. It's not just that there is this phenomenon um that I'll, I'll get a bit, I'll start talking about more in the next segment. There's this phenomenon to get rid of any difference in the world, any inequality. And, and that, uh, of course, started a long time ago. Uh, but getting rid of gender itself is currently um, a fad. It's currently in vogue. And, you know, you may have seen this years ago, in the 80s, if you're old enough to remember the 80s, you know, were these sort of androgynous music stars that, you know, weren't really uh, male or female. And then Saturday Night Live, you know, with Rob Schneider um, 
did a, a sketch years ago with Pat. You know, Pat was the androgynous uh, person at work that they didn't know if it was a guy or a girl. And they sort of joked about it for a while. Um, it's sort of come home to roost in that people really want this. They want a world to exist where there's no gender. And um, it, it's sort of happening at the same time where there's so many vaccine-damaged kids who, who may potentially have a genuine scientifically uh, documented phenomenon of their hormones essentially being screwed up. It encourages them to do this. Now, in the past, stigma or shame or you know, strong cultural norms may have steered kids clear of this, even though you know, they may have had an issue. All these pieces may have been in place to steer them clear of it. We don't have those anymore, unfortunately. There is no stigma anymore. We live in a matriarchal society, and stigma no longer exists. So these kids are free to explore whatever um, sorts of things either they feel naturally through, um, well, I'll say unnaturally through vaccine damage, or maybe um, just because it's a fad, it feels like something they want to take part in. Now, another thing that's going on is there is the sort of um, Olympics of suffering. You know, there is this desire to be seen as the most oppressed people group in the world. This is another um, side effect of living within a matriarchal society is uh, rather than merit being rewarded, um, compassion and suffering are rewarded. And uh, this has caused all kinds of problems, one of which is uh, evident in the transgender movement, because it, it's not enough to be gay anymore. You know, being gay is kind of boring. It's kind of old school. And, and Abigail Schreider, uh, Abigail talks about this in the um, Irreversible Damage book, is it's sort of a race to see who can be the most oppressed. And, and people just don't, you just don't have lesbians anymore, she said. It's just not enough to be lesbian. You, you got to be transgender because lesbian is kind of boring. It's just not hardcore enough. And interestingly, when these parents, when these kids come out to their parents, the, the really interesting phenomenon that I think proves what I'm saying is if the parents accept them, the kids rebel even more. Now, why is that? Think about why is that? The kids want to be oppressed. They want to suffer. They want to be seen as heroically suffering through some malady. And when their parents accept them, it ruins that for them. It takes away the stigma. It takes away the suffering. It takes away the, the perceived um, handicap that they have if their parents accept it. So in the book, she talks about how over and over parents were so confused when they made this, what they felt to be a brave decision to accept their children as they were, and their children rejected them for it. So it, it's a very strange phenomenon in that um, there's a confluence of issues going on, which I think have just sort of all arrived at the same time. Uh, I think vaccine damage playing a, a good uh, part in it. I think um, this desire to break free of the constraints of gender in general and um, this sort of um, suffering Olympics to be seen as 
someone suffering more than another because we live in a matriarchal society where suffering and being oppressed is rewarded um, rather than shamed. And because of those things, you have a populace that is, is going crazy. They are becoming transgender um, because of all these things. And I think it shows that the notion of Jack and Jill, you know, Jack and Jill ran up a hill and, and boys and girls and boys play with guns and girls play with dolls. Th- this is hereditary in, in large part, but it's not completely hereditary. There are, there are things that parents need to do to enforce uh, gender stereotypes. They need to do this. Mothers need to play store with their daughters. Fathers need to play war with their sons. They need to encourage these things because we need boys and girls in this world to survive. As as a species, we will not survive if we don't encourage boys to play with guns and girls to play with dolls. I mean, this is just parenting 101 is love your children, make them feel safe, challenge them make them feel like they want to get better and help them understand who they are in the world. And, and one of the first things they are in the world is a human. And that's pretty easy. You, you can't pretend very well that you're an animal, although transgender has definitely extended into that realm with the furries and, and, and um, kids that think they're cats and dogs and act that out. During the day, to the extent that they bring litter boxes to school, and the litter bo- and the schools are um, powerless to stop the kids from trying to poop in the litter box because they think they're animals. Um, but part of that, uh, back to the parenting, is teach your children to be boys and girls, and that that feels like our culture has forgotten that. It feels like it just happens naturally, and um, there's no need to enforce these things, but. There is. This is. It, this is what societies have done for thousands of years. Is they have treated boys like, um, you know, the sort of um, violence in the making kids they are. Now, I don't want to say encourage kids to be violent, but there is a part of that you do. You need. You need to teach them to be violent in a way. You need to teach them to be dangerous. You need to teach them to be able to take risks. To be brave. To be courageous, you need to teach them that you're proud of them when they are these things. And girls, you need to teach them to nurture and care and love. You need to teach them to to know when things are dangerous and to understand that they are not as powerful as the boys are and that the boys can overpower them. And not everyone has their best interests at heart. You need to teach them to be wise. You need to teach them to be patient. You need to teach them to be good mothers one day. I mean, this is just parenting 101 and we've forgotten about it. We, we've totally forgotten about it. So um, I, I could go on on, on this for, for days and I, I'm almost, we're getting toward the end of the segment. And I, somebody asked me, um, uh, do, do I have any new books that I'm working on? And um, I, I do, you know, people aren't reading books in, as much anymore. I, I just mentioned that. And, and it's really concerning to me. I, I'm afraid uh, that people are, are getting dumber by the day. I've already said that. I, I think part of that is not reading, like literally reading books, 
like digital or paper. People do audiobooks, and that's great in a way. I think you still need to read um, paper or or screens. Not not my favorite. Um, I also think you need to write, like physically write on paper with a pen. Uh, I think um, that is one of the most important things you can do as a human being to keep your brain working is to actually physically write like all my notes for the show I wrote on a notebook. Not, I'm not, this sounds like a virtue signal here, but I try to force myself to write. Um, um, but uh, regardless, um, I have a book um, that I've been researching for a while that I just kind of kick around every now and then. And uh, sometimes I call it the infection dilemma. And um, I've got another title for it, which I'll tell you in a second. But the infection dilemma is essentially the, the third leg in destroying the vaccine myth, uh, polio being the first one. And um, the autism vaccine, the book I wrote uh, explaining how um, a particular vaccine introduced in the 1930s uh, with a new ingredient in it was the beginning of autism. Um, that was sort of the second leg. And the third leg is the infection dilemma, which suggests crazy, I know, that infection is not always bad, and in fact, is usually not bad. Just like going to the gym to exercise creates a little pain and suffering, but uh, no pain, no gain. You get muscles at the end of it, you get healthier, you recover from injury faster, all good things happen from going to the gym. In the same way, getting sick is the going to the gym of your immune system. And you can't get healthy by never going to the gym. You can't get healthy by never getting sick. You can't get healthy by taking steroids instead of going to the gym. You can't get healthy taking vaccines instead of getting sick. This is completely obvious to me and probably is obvious to you. But for some reason, we live in a world that is terrified of infection and thinks it's the worst thing ever and we should celebrate it. You know, we used to do this. We used to have pox parties and, you know, people, if their kid got chicken pox, they would purposefully bring their kids over to purposefully infect them. And it was completely accepted and normal and not weird at all. And we knew that if children got chicken pox, then it was a completely trivial infection that they would never get it again. And we've completely screwed it up by we stopped the pox parties, we created a chicken pox shot, which screws up people's immune system, which has caused the resurgence of chicken pox, which has caused the resurgence of shingles in adult population because shingles is just the reappearance of uh, chicken pox, which in a natural environment where chicken pox is floating around, um, naturally infecting children, the adults received boosters. You know, whether they liked it or not, they received a natural boosting effect from the children's infections. Now that we sort of put a stop to that through these ridiculous chickenpox vaccines, now shingles has exploded everywhere. And what do they do? Well, now we got shingles vaccines. Uh, so it's just showing you how dumb, how dumb the whole vaccine industry is. It is absolutely dumb. It is useless. It's worse than useless. It's horrible. It's created every every manner of suffering in humankind from autism to neuro other neurological illnesses to autoimmune to asthma to food allergies all of that is basically never existed before vaccines and now it does so the infection dilemma is a book about how infection actually helps you how polio infections can cure brain cancer how measles can cure kidney disease and all these other sorts of 
uh, interesting tidbits of wisdom people used to know. Um, the alternate title I'm thinking of calling it is Why We Kiss. And the book Why We Kiss would explain why we kiss, which is to share our immune system with each other and to make us all healthier. Stay tuned. We got a quick timeout. We're going to be right back with a really interesting part of the show. The Forrest Moretti Show, live. Years ago, when I used to make videos on Facebook and YouTube about the world gone mad, I had a phrase I used to tell all the people who hated me. You remember what it was? Good luck with your vaccines. You remember that? It was like a verbal middle finger to everyone who hated me for insisting I was crazy to believe not only were vaccines unnecessary, but they were the most harmful medical procedure ever introduced into the human population. I sold stickers, t-shirts, hats, and hoodies with that phrase and logo, the syringe with the fingers crossed beside it. Even though people always ask me for them, I stopped selling them because I felt so horrible about the COVID shot and how many people got duped by those in charge to get it. Well, it's a few years later, and I've actually renewed my hatred for those people still pushing this demon juice on the world's population. So I'm selling shirts and hoodies again. Good luck with your vaccines. Available now in my store at ForrestMoretti.com. As Christianity, the world's most popular religion, approaches its 2,000-year anniversary, more have begun to question mainstream dogma than ever before. Whether political corruption, scientific fraud, or medical tyranny, humans are waking up to the fact much of what they were promised to be true was instead deception. Lies meant to cloud the truth and give power to those who deceive them. Over the course of hundreds of years, man-made doctrines accumulated and warped the Christian faith so drastically, many of its early believers would scarcely recognize it. For those unafraid to look, Red Pill Gospel peels back the layers of lies man added to the gospel and reveals the beautiful hope it portrays. Red Pill Gospel, Christianity Before It Was Ruined by Christians, a book from Forrest Moretti. Today, many of the treasured institutions that made America such a great place to live are being destroyed. Riots fill the streets as cities burn. Churches sit empty. Public education is in shambles. Law and order are no longer respected and nothing appears safe from disruption. Are social justice, critical race theory, and equality the key to understanding our world's ills? Or could our insistence on equality in all things actually be the root of most every problem we face? Unequaled asks an important question. What if inequality was created by God on purpose? What if our rebellion against inequality is actually the root of all sin, the very thing that is breaking the natural order of God's creation right now? Unequaled is one of my most important books and it's available on Amazon and ForrestMoretti.com now. Hey, Ryeth. It's an old Welsh word you don't have in the English language. It means a feeling of homesickness for a home to which you cannot return. A grief for something not only lost, but something you can't even remember what it was. It's a fitting word right now. Nations feel lost, lives devoid of meaning. Is this really the way we're supposed to live? The Tribal Instinct is a book that explains how Christians are called to live amongst their own, amongst people who speak like you, 
think like you, even look like you. It's not only a natural desire, but a biblical one as well. The tribal instinct, the sacred desire for people and place, will help you to understand why we often feel her wraith, that longing for a home we cannot return, and what we can do to recover what was lost. The Tribal Instinct, a book by Forrest Moretti, available in paperback, digital and audio versions. The Red Pill Gospel, coming to you live. The Forrest Moretti Show. All right, welcome back. As promised, you've made it to the third and final hour of the show. I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard so far. This is the first episode of The Forrest Moretti Show. I'm your host with the same name, and I am the guest with the same name because this is the first episode and I've assumed there would be technical problems given that there is a bunch of gear sitting around here, around me. You can see some of it on the video screen if you happen to be watching it. I wrote some software to handle the music uh, and incredibly, uh, I think maybe things are actually working. Um, so next week, uh, we have an incredible guest on, a guy that goes by the name of Woe. He was doxxed by Antifa because of some things he said about the Lutheran church, which then excommunicated him, if I'm getting this right. And um, he's going to come on to tell his story. He's a guy, a really interesting guy, very smart guy. Uh, I think we're going to have a great conversation. He worked at Apple for 15 years and has all kinds of stories from there. I'm sure we'll try and get to one or two of those. I'm sure he'll be happy to take your questions. And um, the week after that, March 9th, is a guy that was a professor at John MacArthur's university, um, Master's University in Jerusalem, Israel. He lived there for 25 years and was fired for his beliefs. And uh, he's a fascinating guy as well. And I can't wait to talk to him. I can't wait for you to hear his story. These are the people that I love talking to because they stood up for what they believed in no matter the cost. And, um, you know, there's a thing that if you haven't worried about this already, um, there's a concern that we won't know what the truth is soon. You know, uh, deep fakes and artificial intelligence and all these sorts of technology are progressing to the point where it's going to be impossible to know what's true. And in fact, I wrote a book about this years ago. It was my first book called Massa Demnata which is the first book in a, a three-book set that essentially posed the question of what would society look like when no one knows what's true anymore. And people had these things called um, neurojacks, and they called them jacks, and they were how they sort of um, plugged into this giant computer system called the collective, which is where all their memory was stored. And this is how they could tell whether something was real or not, was they could go into the collective. And because it stored people's memories, that was you knew it was real because it was ju just a memory store. And you can imagine things, mistakes were made, uh, the memory store got, got hacked, and all sorts of problems began to happen. So I was thinking about this a few years ago. It's obviously on everyone's radar now. It's a big deal. And I think an easy way to tell what the truth is, now you can't do this for everything, but it's people like I just mentioned, whoa, from next week, 
and the professor from the week after that. These people, you can almost guarantee when someone risks everything, when they sacrifice everything, you can almost guarantee that's the truth. Now, I'm not saying always, but when someone does that, it's usually a good sign that they're telling the truth. Now, when someone says something and they get a job for it, they get a professorship or a raise, or they get on TV, they get to go on CNN, they get a big uh, promotion, it, it is not a good sign they're telling the truth. They are saying the things that get them the promotion, that get them the raise, that get them what they want. When you see someone who says something and they get fired for it, canceled for it, kicked out of their church, um, you know, ignored by their family. When someone does this, you can almost guarantee they are telling the truth. And if not, they are trying to tell the truth. These are the people you need to listen to as we move into the age of AI deep fakes and not knowing what the truth is. The easiest way to understand what the truth is, find those people who are risking everything to say something that other people don't like. You can almost guarantee that's the truth. So uh, th those shows are coming up next week on Saturday, March 2nd, and the week after on March 9th. Um, this show, just so you know, I'm broadcasting live to Twitter Spaces, which is an audio-only platform. I'm pushing it out as a video stream to my website at forestmoretti.com and uh, Rumble, which I, I'd rather you go to my website. I don't want to try and make a Rumble presence. I'd rather you just go to my website. After the fact, the, these shows are getting pushed as podcasts. Currently, uh, they'll be on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You may be listening to them on, on those channels right now. And if so, just know that my website is really the safest place to access these shows because I don't expect Apple or Spotify will have me on for long. I'm kind of keeping it clean for the first couple of episodes in hopes that I can get the word out so people know I'm doing this show. But just so you know, my website, hopefully that will hold up uh, longer than these others. You can listen as a podcast on my, on my website. You don't have to have a, a special app to do it. You just hit play, close your phone, and it'll keep playing. You can go to the gym or mow the yard or whatever you do, and you'll, you'll still hear the audio. Um, you can watch the video feed, which will have a subtitles on it, uh, sometimes hilarious subtitles because the computer's doing the best it can. It doesn't know how to spell my last name. <laughs> maybe I can teach it that one day. Uh, so maybe we have nothing to fear from computers uh, because it can't even spell my last name. But um, regardless, this is um, the final hour, the third hour, where we're going to get kind of deep here, where there's no more breaks. We're, we're going straight from here to the end. And uh, I, I hope you enjoy uh, the sort of deep dive when we have guests on. We'll definitely have some interesting conversation. Um, so the question I wanted to kick this off with is... What's the biggest problem facing us right now? What's, what's the biggest problem? We as humans, you could say that. We as Americans, um, you could say we uh, as Christians, if, if that's your faith, that's my faith. And I, I think of things from that context. Um, we as Europeans, I'm, I'm a European. I, I think of things in that context as well. So, um, you know, kind of wherever you are along that spectrum, um, what, what are the problems we face uh, because it feels like we have some problems, right? <laughs> it feels like um, there's interesting times ahead. I, I don't know about you, but um, I have this sort of 
overarching sense that, um, you know, is this the last time we do this? Is this the last time um, we can watch the Super Bowl? Is this the last time we go to Europe? Is Europe still going to be there five years from now? You know, the beautiful cities that we we love. Um, all these things uh, seem to be coming up. It feels like a serious time. It feels like something significant is happening in human history. You know, I'm sure you've heard the saying that history um, doesn't always repeat itself, but it rhymes. And, and I think that's true in large part. But I think we are in unprecedented times. We are in a period that there are a few things happening which have never happened before. Nothing close to what's happened uh, happening has happened before. Um, there have been the rise and fall of empires and nations. Uh, yes, that's happened before. Uh, there have been pandemics before. Uh, that didn't just happen as far as I can tell, but a lot of people think it did. Um, there, there are rhymes around us, but something different is happening. Something that's never happened before. And, and I really believe this. And it's part of the reason I'm, I'm a little scared sometimes, uh, but it's also part of the reason I'm excited about the future. Because if you're like me, you have likely grown up with very little meaning in your life. The Horeath that I spoke about, the tribal instinct, the desire to live amongst your people in place, you've probably never experienced that. You know, maybe you felt it a bit at Christmas. Maybe you felt it a bit at Easter, something like that. But most people in human history have spent every day of their life living amongst the fabric of history that they and their parents and their grandparents all grew up in. They walked to school across bridges their grandfather built. They ate dinners from recipes that their great great, great grandmother wrote down and it's on the same piece of paper 90 years later. You know, these sorts of things where everything feels important, everything feels connected. The people you live amongst are just like you. They have the same history. They speak the same language. They even have the same accent. All these sorts of things, these cultural, spiritual uh, cues that tie us together as human beings, most people have, have never experienced. And I, I feel like I kind of, I'm old enough that I kind of grew up with that a little bit, and, and I've, I've seen it go away. I think kids today uh, have never experienced it. They, they've never known what it's like to feel part of a, a people group, to feel that sense of belonging. And that's why I'm excited about the future is because I think we're going to be able to fix that. I, I think we're going to be able to live in a new way that gives people that meaning and sense of belonging from living amongst your people, from living in a place that feels like home. Um, I saw on Twitter the other day, I saw a guy, um, I, I wish I could remember his name, but it's just a guy following there. And he, he tweeted out a picture of some woods. And he said, I just bought the 70 acres that surround my childhood home. And and I thought, oh man, that's really awesome. That's just so cool uh, that you get to do that. And, and I was just sort of thinking on that. And not too long later, he, he tweeted out again, 
something to the effect of uh, threw away my bug out bag. And if if you've ever uh, like studied or, or read anything about preppers, they, they have this thing called their bug out bag. And the bug out bag is this thing. Now, forgive me if I'm getting this wrong, but you, you can just kind of grab it. It's got uh, enough stuff to help you survive. Like if you have to leave town, you know, with some food in it, maybe a gun or water purification tablets or fire starters or, you know, whatever. It's this thing you can just grab and you know you've got enough in there to kind of make it as best you can for a couple of days while you try and figure out like what you're going to do. And he said, I threw away my bug out bag, which was just awesome because he was in his place. He, he was essentially saying, I'm not leaving. This is my place. I found my people in place. And it's right here. I don't need the bug out bag anymore. And that's what we all want, right? We all want that place to live and to call home and to feel uh, the connection um, where you know the birds. You can tell if if a bird comes in, you know it's not natural to the area because you know all the sounds, you know the trees, you know the people, you know the history of the people, that sort of thing. Um, we all want that I think we do have problems coming up. I think it will definitely be some struggle, some trials to get through it. But I think at the end, uh, we're all going to make it. Uh, most of us will make it. Hopefully, you all listening will make it because um, I think um, there the, the thing that's going to take the place of nationhood is going to be interesting. I think uh, I think tribes are, are going to make a very quick um, rise uh, in the absence of nationhood, you know, as these global powers uh, claim more and more and, and try to control more and more, you will see the breakdown of nations and people will essentially split up into tribes. And, and the, this, as I mentioned earlier, this may form along a variety of different um, traits um, allegiances by faith, by language, by race, by whatever. You, you will see these tribes form in all sorts of ways. And I've seen people speak ill of tribes. I, I've seen them say they are passe, and this is, you know, we're, we are better than this as humans, and, and we don't need to do this anymore. And again, this is ridiculous. Um, this will happen whether you like it or not. You, you are living in a fantasy land if you don't think um, when they're is no food or little food, and there's few jobs and things like that. You're living in fantasy land if you don't think people are going to start to form allegiances very quickly based on attributes which you may currently find distasteful, but will quickly find yourself agreeing to. Now, um, we can bet on it too. I'll, I'll be happy to bet any of you. I, I know this is going to happen. Th there is no way new nations form out of, uh, in the future without, uh, tribes first, you know, essentially tribes are the precursor to nationhood. When you have enough tribes that are in agreement with e each other, nations form out of that, but you never get to nationhood without first getting through tribe. And we currently have no tribes, so we will have no nation before we have no tribe. So you might as well get used to the fact that you're going to have to find your people in place at some point. Um, Hopefully, you live somewhere um, where you don't have to move. Um, but um, for me, who lives in a city, fairly large city right on the coast, you know, we're sort of hemmed in by the ocean on one side. 
Um, it's a little, it's a little disconcerting uh, in terms of food security and these sorts of things. Um, we actually have a river um, or two that that hem us in on the other side of the ocean, so we have bridges that we need to get out of where I live. But um, nevertheless, um, what are the biggest issues we face? Um, what is the, the root of why are these things happening, all these crazy things, coronavirus, transgender, these things we've spoken of. Um, there's a lot of seeming uh, racial enmity right now. There's a lot of racial violence. There's a lot of very crazy things going on all at once. And it seems to be accelerating. And a lot of people um, talk about all these crazy things. And I don't see a lot of people talking about why are they happening? Why are all these crazy things happening right now? Is this truly some global elite group, you know, um, sitting in their lair, coordinating the efforts of prime ministers and presidents all over the world, ensuring that their plans are perfectly executed so that their plan for world domination is perfectly executed? You know, is, is that what what's actually happening? And, um, here, I'll just tell you, I'll, I'll try and summarize most of this really quickly. Um, something interesting is going on in the world right now that started a hundred and, I don't know, 170 some years ago. It started in the year 1848. And, uh, you know, you asked me about what books I'm writing on. This is another book uh, that nobody will read because it's just too lofty. It's too crazy. Um but the, the book is called 1848, and it's about this year, because 1848 is an incredibly important year in world history. It, it is the beginning of the end of Western civilization is 1848. Now, now what's significant about that year? Well, there's all kinds of interesting things that happened in 1848, um, but uh, th there were revolutions all over Europe. There were, there were a lot of things, but there, there are actually three things that... Um, that have sort of coalesced in such a way that we're just now seeing them at their peak um, uh, wickedness, if you want to call it, at their peak, um, uh, the peak of their destruction. So um, one of these things um, is um, Karl Marx uh, published Communist Manifesto. This was published in 1848. Um, Karl Marx and the Communist Manifesto were essentially laying the groundwork for what we now think of as communism. And um, communism is interesting in that it's sort of a political theory and it's sort of an economic theory. It's kind of both that essentially um, tries to control people in such a way that no one has any more than anyone else so that um, everyone has equal amounts of stuff. Now, I'm sure there's some smarty pants amongst you who are cringing at this explanation of communism. I apologize, but for now, let's just go with it. Um, 1848, Karl Marx published the Communist Manifesto, Manifesto which has become uh, a, a obviously a huge, huge political and economic movement um, throughout the world. In that same year, uh, there was a group of women that met in Seneca Falls, New York, um, one of which was named Elizabeth Cady Stanton, 
And they essentially um, held, uh, I can't remember what they called it. It was a, um, it was a meeting of the minds to establish the beginning of women's rights. And it's considered uh, by everyone to be the beginning, the birthplace of feminism. Uh, this was Seneca Falls, New York, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and a bunch of other ladies met together to decide on, uh, to, to speak their minds, to voice some complaints and try and change uh, the way the world worked, which was essentially a patriarchy, it was male dominated. And uh, that was 1848. So uh, you have the Communist Manifest Manifesto, uh, the birthplace of communism. You have Elizabeth Cady Stanton in Seneca Falls, New York, the birthplace of feminism. And there was one other thing that happened that year. Um, there was a guy named Alfred Russell Wallace. You may have heard of him. His partner, you've definitely heard of, his partner was named Charles Darwin. Um, Alfred Russell Wallace was the lesser known of the two who had proposed um, that um, life as we know it came to be not by design, not by purpose, but through a series of um, accidents, I'll call it. And, and they used the term natural selection. And in 1848, um, Alfred Russell Wallace traveled to Brazil to collect specimens. He went on a, a big year-long trip to collect specimens for this new hypothesis or theory about natural selection. And um, it's, it's not really the birthplace uh, of evolutionary theory because it was being discussed before that, but it was an important, important event in evolution. And so in 1848, you have these three things, uh, communism, feminism, and evolution. They essentially got started in that same year. And my argument is that these three things have all conspired to upset the world in such a way that's never been seen before, in such a way that we are unlikely to ever see again. Now, you may, you may have a hard time believing that. You may think, well, sure, I mean, these things have their problems, but how, how have these three things actually conspired to change the world? Well, I'll explain how. All of these three things have suggested that inequality is wrong. That, that's the heart of it. They've all made people believe that inequality is wrong. Now, this may be a new idea for you. You, you may say, well, yeah, inequality is wrong. It's not fair. I mean, everybody... Everybody needs, you know, the same opportunities and, and all that. Well, this is not the way the world works. This is not the way nature works. This is not the way anything actually works naturally. The world, creation, nature, the solar system, everything in God's grand design is full of inequality. There is nothing 
that is equal. You are not equal to yourself from day to day. Roger Federer on Monday is going to lose tennis to Roger Federer on Tuesday. You can't be the same thing yourself, and nothing in nature is the same. Everything is different, and this is the way it's supposed to be. I use the example of a machine. Imagine a machine that's built out of identical parts. Just think, try and think of a machine that's built out of 15 identical parts. Well, you can't think of a machine that's built out of 15 identical parts because they don't exist. A machine requires, by by, uh, matter of fact, it requires pieces of different things. Some may be small, some may be large, some may be rigid, some may be flexible, some may move, some may be still, some may be light, some may be heavy, and so on and so on. This is how a mousetrap works, right? A mousetrap works because there's all kinds of different parts. There's a wood base, there's a spring, there's a latch, there's a trap. All these things work together in order to catch and kill mice. Everything in nature works that way. Everything in nature has a purpose. You may be more important than someone. You may be less important than someone. You may be more beautiful than someone. You may be uglier. You may be smarter, dumber, on and on the comparisons go. But no matter what, you will never be equal to anyone. Not a plant, not a tree, not an animal. There is nothing on earth that will ever be equal to anything else. Communism, feminism, and evolution have conspired against the very nature of God's creation in such a way to make people believe that things should be equal, that make people believe things are supposed to be the same, but something happened that changed that. Something happened that made it so that they weren't equal. Now, this is the rejection of hierarchy. This is the rejection of inequality when it is the natural state of things. There is no way the world functions effectively, peacefully, beautifully without the acknowledgement that some will have many, some will have less. Some will be smarter, some will be more beautiful, some will be dumber, some will be uglier. This is the state of affairs in the creation of God. And to suppose that you can somehow circumvent this with laws and orders and rules and all of these things is foolish. It is the heart of every problem we face right now. I talk about hierarchy. This is the original sin. People naturally reject hierarchy. Adam and Eve rejected the notion that God was above them somehow, but before the apple, they were perfectly fine with it. It was, it was the natural state of things, and they were satisfied with that arrangement. But after the apple, they rejected the hierarchy that had been put into place. They didn't like the fact God was above them somehow. In the time since, we've rejected this hierarchy God's placed upon us, and 
different ways. We've tried to redefine God and an image that suits us better. This is, just to be honest with you, this is what the Trinitarian version of God is to me. God said he was one throughout the Bible over and over. He said, I define who I am. You don't. And what do we do? A couple hundred years later, we say, well, actually, you're not really one. You're three. When the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me, we circle back and say, well, actually, God is three. It's not one. So uh, Christians rejected that. We try to sneak some kind of polytheism in there. We tell ourselves it's not polytheism, but um, we still say God is one, but I don't think we're fooling anyone. Um, this is the same reason some religions make people into gods. It's that same rejection of the hierarchy God wove into creation. God is above us and has knowledge and power and glory and honor will never have. Yes, a thousand times yes. And in fact, if you don't occasionally, if not frequently, prostrate yourself before his throne, you'll begin to worship something else, most likely yourself. That's how immensely full of glory and honor God is. Even if you reject him completely, you still have that instinct to worship. It's so ingrained into your DNA. You'll turn to worship something else if you don't worship God. Um, this is why I have a problem with some modern church services, by the way. They call, they call them worship services, but 80% of it is a sermon. And that just doesn't seem to leave a lot of time for worship. And worship is about God. It's not about you thanking him, being in awe of him. So uh, anyway, that's just a little aside about hierarchy. Um, I, I think this is a unique time in creation uh, with wickedness like the world's never seen before. And I think today represents an inversion of that hierarchy. It's not only between God and man that's been going on forever. We're trying to create a world where the notion of gender doesn't even exist. We're trying to create a world where age doesn't exist, where, where race doesn't exist, where women can be soldiers and children can lead, and millions of people of every race and color and language and religion can all be crammed together in the same cities and will all magically get along. This is ridiculous to me. It's obviously ridiculous. It's, it's worse than ridiculous. It's suicidal. It's the ultimate rejection of God's creation. Sure, um, anyone can reject God, but that's a personal thing for them. It's a personal decision that uh, might affect their family. But the rejection of creation, the destruction of creation, we're seeing going all around us, it's purposeful. It's, it's for everyone. It's the rejection of hierarchy. And, um, I don't know about you, but People accept this. They, they worship it. You, you can look at church services and you'll see this. There, there are Christian churches all over the world that embrace this destruction of hierarchy. And, and it's like week by week, month by month. It, it just grows. I mean, there's things, you know, they used to would never dare say in church a year ago that now they're saying openly. And what is it again? They've caved to the promise that everything is equal. And if it's not equal, it should be. And that that's a lie. That's a, a giant lie. 
that if you can't wrap your mind around, if you can't become comfortable with the fact that not everything is equal, inequality is a naturally occurring part of God's creation, if you can't get comfortable with that, um, you are going to go the way of the world. You, you have to be able to accept this. You have to be able to accept that God's creation is full of inequality. And in fact, it's the way he wanted things. It's the proper way of things. Um, this is why the Genesis story, it's so profound to me. I mean, people get hung up on, you know, is it a metaphor? Is it real? Um, it's like, who cares? The message of the story, it's just so profound. It should just blow you away. And it's profound in a way that people, you know, a thousand, two thousand years ago, they wouldn't understand. It's profound in a way that it makes sense today in a way that it probably has never made sense in human history. And that's the original sin, Eve eating the tree of knowledge, Adam eating the tree of knowledge, and realizing they were beneath God. That was what happened. They realized they were naked. They realized they were not like God. They were beneath him. And this is the original human sin, is the rejection of hierarchy that God is above us and we are not gods. So I I think um, this notion that everything is equal is rampant everywhere you look. And, um, you know, how does evolution play into that, you might ask? Well, evolution supposes that there is no purposeful design to this. Evolution supposes that everything just happened by accident and, in fact, is on the way to being perfected. The creation account, the Christian belief, would suggest that creation is perfect. It was perfect. Um, you know, what, whatever fall, whatever result of the fall, you might argue has happened to creation, fine. But it started perfect, and, and creation was uh, pleasing to God. He finished. It was done. And, and then uh, evolution comes along and says, no, hang on, wait a minute. It's not done. It's actually not even close to done. We're, we're not even halfway there. We are on our way to perfection in such a way you wouldn't believe. If you just had enough time to wait, it will be perfected. Evolution teaches humankind that we are not um, perfectly created by God, but are imperfect and should devote our time and resources to perfecting what has fallen. You know what I mean? It suggests that we are nowhere near perfect and that with enough effort and enough money and enough human ingenuity, then we can be perfected and then um, heaven, then the kingdom of God will be achieved by humans working to perfect that which was, you know, never perfected in the first place. And this is the real problem with evolution is it's given rise to the notion that humans can perfect things. It's given them the desire to control and have power 
over things. I mean, this is essentially uh, the World Health Organization, the Global Agenda 2030. All these things are the result. Yuval Narari or Harari, whatever his name is. These are all people and organizations that have been birthed out of the notion that things are perfectible with enough money, with enough ingenuity, and they're not. The, the reality is they're not. Um, things are already falling apart from their efforts, and of course they will continue to try. But um, evolution has caused a lot of problems uh, beyond that uh, in, in such a way that you know, people think of themselves as accidents. People don't think of themselves as wonders of God's creation. Um, it's all sorts of problems like that. Um, you know, it, how, how do you worship God through creation uh, when you have an evolutionary mindset? It, it's, it's almost impossible. I mean, you can certainly believe that God uses evolution to create, you know, he uses natural selection uh, over millions of years. If, you know, if this is your, your sort of time frame and belief system, he uses this for creation. Um, but you lose something in that. Now, I, I don't believe that. Um, I don't believe that's how it happened. But you lose something with that. You lose the wonder of creation. You know, part of our, our weekly church services, we go around and and we say what we're thankful for. And then we try and think of something in God's creation that we're thankful for or that we are amazed at. You know, this is part of um, knowing God. It's not just scripture. It's creation itself speaks to God's wonders. And, you know, you need to be mindful of that. Or I shouldn't say you, you probably are. We, me, need to be mindful of that, um, that that not only does scripture speak to God's glory, but the creation does as well. Um, and you lose that with evolution when it just feels like random chance. Um, it, it's just, you lose that wonder. And and the, I was going to ask what your first red pill moment was. Uh, I, I'm curious, but for me, um, this was actually the first thing I, I read a book about evolution. I, I had sort of bought into it and, and I read uh, Darwin's black box um, I, I believe his last name is Behe. I think it's Brian Behe. He was like a molecular biologist who wrote this book about the problems with evolution. And, you know, he had this theory called uh, intelligent design because I don't know if he's a Christian and maybe he was or maybe he wasn't, but his he had come to the realization that you can't uh, get natural selection to work um, without some intelligent design by it. Like that random chance and mutation, no matter how much time is involved, is is not enough to get you there. And and he used the big argument about the mousetrap, you know, how a mousetrap doesn't work unless every part is functioning perfectly at the same time. You can't get there piece by piece. And in that same way, blood clotting doesn't work piece by piece. Uh, blood vessels don't work if there's no blood to carry. Blood doesn't work if there's no blood vessels to carry. Uh, blood clotting doesn't work if there's no blood to clot. Blood will never last if there's no blood clotting. You know, on and on these things go. And that was sort of my re first red pill moment was, oh my gosh, I had no idea how ridiculous evolution was. I, I had always just sort of accepted that, you know, maybe it's true. I I, I don't know. But uh, Darwin's black box was for me, it just, it just blew my mind. I mean, here was a molecular biologist who'd written about this stuff very scientifically, explained blood clotting and 
how human vision works, you know, down to the protein level. And it just felt like so ridiculous that random chance through natural selection, no matter how much time you give it, it doesn't matter. Time is not the problem. Um, but I mean, in fact, time is a problem for evolution, but it doesn't matter. Even with no time, it just still doesn't work. So that's my, my take on the big problem right now. It's the notion that inequality doesn't exist or shouldn't exist. And everyone's trying to correct it. This is what feminism is. I mean, feminism is essentially the belief that men and women aren't different. And, you know, we currently live in a matriarchal society where uh, things are upside down. And the belief that, you know, women could make fine soldiers and police officers, and and no offense to any of you in law enforcement, but... um, you know, women do not project authority in the same way men do. I mean, this is just a fact. It, I, if it offends you, I'm sorry. Um, well, I'm not really sorry. I'm, I'm, I hope you understand that um, women cannot project authority like men can. Um, men do not fear women uh, unless you have a gun, and that's not really fear. They fear the gun. They don't fear the woman. And um, this sort of propagates its way through political leadership, through law enforcement, through spiritual leadership, and all these things, um, there is a natural authority that stems from uh, men that we have lost. We've tried to substitute it with women, um, but it hasn't worked. This is why churches sort of fall apart once they start having women pastors, is because there is no authority there. There is no natural authority figure and things turn to chaos. Um, it, it may work for a while. It may coast on the fumes of some uh, good will that was left there by previous pastors, but um, this is one of the problems um, with female leadership is that um, they do not project authority in the way men do. I mean, if you were to take away uh, PA systems you know, public address systems, if you were to take that away, um, women in leadership at churches would disappear because um, just that one piece of technology alone has changed the way churches work in that um, men projecting their voice loud and clear conveys authority and confidence. A a woman uh, projecting her voice loud and clear conveys distress. It conveys um, men want to help her. Um, it's just the natural state of things. And um, there are so many other ways that we've screwed up things by living within a matriarchal culture um, where justice is nearly impossible. You know, it's not fair to ask women to be judges and judge impartially. You know, women are designed to be caretakers and to extend every possible opportunity um, for. Uh, forgiveness and second chances um, because they are the judges of their children and um, they need to be able to do these things with their children. Um, But to put them in a position uh, to practice law and order where authoritative ruling needs to happen and bad things need to happen to bad people is it's not fair to women to ask them to do that. And this is why you have judges you see this in Europe. You have judges who are letting rapists go free 
because they can't possibly send them back to their home country because things are so bad there. So we must let this rapist stay here because it's just not fair to them. And on and on, these sorts of things goes. And, and men are doing the same thing too because they also live within a matriarchal society and they are beholden uh, to feminine nature. They have become feminine themselves and they are unable to project authority. They are unable to rule um, with justice and they, they've created a mess from, from all these things. And this is really the problem with feminism is it's created a weak country that is incapable of defending its borders with a military that's incapable of projecting power with leadership that's unable to make difficult decisions that may offend people that may hurt some feelings that may cost people um, their jobs, their livelihood. All these things are, are coming home to roost now because we have allowed ourselves to become a matriarchal society where men don't lead anymore. And this is something that will need to be fixed in the next iteration of nationhood. Um, it, it'll inevitably be fixed. I mean, it's a horrible thing to see right now, but there's no way we make it out of this without a restoration of patriarchy and a restoration of gender roles. Um, it's going to be a very long path for some people to suffer through, um, but it will happen uh, whether you like it or not. It's the only way out of this, just like uh, tribes are the only way out of this. The restoration of gender role and um, the love of God's creation and the rejection of communism that everything is equal and everything can be made equal. Um, all these things need to be soundly rejected. They, they all started in 1848. They've all risen to great heights and have merged um, like laser beams in a James Bond movie where they're all converging on the same place and they have caused a world of suffering. Um, people li live in delusional state that we can fix every problem if we just love more and if we just have more money and, and other things. And the reality is we can't, that there will always be inequality. There is no fixing it. Um, and the sooner that people get to the place where they accept that and work within it, the better off we'll be. So um, that's, that's what I think the big problem is now. Now, th there's some more controversial aspects of that that I'm not going to go into now, um, maybe in another episode, but it stems from the fact that someone has to be blamed for all this. Um, it's if, if people truly believe that equality is the naturally occurring state, but yet there is inequality everywhere, then someone has to be blamed for that. And, um, unfortunately, um, there is a particular people group of which I am a member that is blamed for that. This is, of course, white Christian males. Uh, that is what I am. I am a white Christian male. And I and people like me are blamed for the presence of inequality in the world. And um, 
who is doing the blaming and who is stirring the pot on this is is a very controversial issue that I'm not going to go into right now. Um, I'll try and get a few episodes in before I get canceled um, by Spotify and Apple and everyone else. But uh, stay tuned on that. Hopefully I can talk about it frankly because it's a difficult subject. It's an uncomfortable subject. And um, there are definitely um, some very concerning um, things that have been put into place, ideologies, practices, belief systems, propaganda, media narratives, etc. There are all these things that have been put into place that um, should have you concerned if you are someone like me, because we are uh, the scapegoat for something that never has existed in nature, but they have convinced the world that it should exist and we're the reason it hasn't. So uh, that being said, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about artificial intelligence, because that's another hot topic right now that people um, are thinking about a lot, like what is going to happen if, if the World Health Organization or Agenda 2030 doesn't kill us, well, then AI is going to kill us, right? <laughs> Feels uh, very dire at some times. I don't know if any of you have been exposed to it, um, but it, it, is, it is remarkable. It's remarkable and it's remarkably disturbing. I, um, if you don't know this already, uh, I recently finished a book. I, I think it's the first book of its kind um, that was relied completely on artificial intelligence. It's called Appalachia. Um, it's got 400 pictures in it. It's a fictitious, fictitious story about a group of Nordic Americans who created their own uh, republic in America just after the Civil War. Now, this is a novel. It's not a true story. But the pictures would make you think otherwise. The pictures, the over 400 pictures, um, look completely convincing, as if I had scoured the archives of some Appalachian libraries and government buildings and just dug up these old photographs of some very odd-looking, kind of half-hillbilly, half-Appalachian people who tried to make a country for themselves and actually did a pretty good job until... Uh, they were too successful, and the government came and essentially shut them down without me uh, you know, revealing too much. The point of the book is uh, it was an experiment in something that I was profoundly disturbed by, uh, and, and needless to say, profoundly fascinated by. As, a, as someone who'd done a lot of visual effects in my life, 3D animation, these sort of things, I... I spent a lot of time making things that were fake. And, you know, I mentioned at the top of the show, I, when I was 10 years old, I created a, a fake movie. I used whatever technology was available to me to create this world. And it was really horrible. You know, it was completely unbelievable. It, it didn't fool anyone. And um, the technology has advanced very quickly in the last few years to the point where I could create this entire world from scratch, uh, from my laptop, with a realism that would almost be impossible even for a very fancy visual effects company like ILM or one of these um, shops that, you know, does all the big um, Avengers movies and things like that. I can just do it from my laptop. I can describe these pictures and it creates them. And I, I was completely disturbed by it. 
I didn't want to do it. I re- I rejected the technology at first, and I thought, you know what, I'm I'm not sure that I'm right to reject it. I don't want to just say that I reject it without having tried it. This is kind of like you know, this is how crack crackheads get started, right? So I said, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to see if I can make a book and I'm going to use every technology available to help me write the book, to help me write all the pictures for the book. And um, so I did. And uh, it's an incredible book. Making the book was probably one of the most profound creative experiences I've ever had. I did it in a month. It has, as I mentioned, over 400 really amazing photographs in it. Um, And I, at the same time, I was completely disturbed the whole time. I was uncomfortable with it. I, I didn't want to go through with it. I wanted to stop. Um, but I, I just sort of pushed myself through because at the same time, like I said, it was just so fascinating. So uh, I finished the book. It's out there. You can buy it if you want. But what was my takeaway from it? Will AI destroy us all? Um, I don't think so. I, I don't think it will. I, I think it will cause disruption in, for instance, attorneys. You know, there's a lot of attorneys that are probably going to be out of a job because the technology can create contracts based on, you know, a thousand other contracts pretty easily. And there's probably a million people out there who would rather pay five bucks for a monthly subscription to ChatGPT or some other AI service than pay an attorney to write it up, no matter their ethic or moral dilemma with such a thing. Um, I think copywriter, like people who write text for advertising or for real estate ads, things like that, I think they will also suffer um, because these things are sort of mundane writing. Now, there's two problems here. The, The real problem is people won't care. Now, I, I used to think, well, the technology is kind of crappy and maybe it'll get better and maybe you can make a movie by writing the scene and, and the software will eventually uh, you know, be able to animate the film just based on what you've said. It's kind of crappy for now, but maybe it'll get there one day. But people are always going to want the real thing. You know, they're, they're going to want authenticity. This is, you know, why people go to Taylor Swift concerts is they want to see the real thing. They don't want to just listen to her on Spotify or whatever. They want to see the real thing. But I think there's a problem in that the listener is the problem. It's not the creator. Humans don't care. Like you or I may care that the quality is not the same. You or I may care that this is an inferior product compared to what a computer might, a human might do. The reality is most humans don't care. That's, that's the problem. The software will get better. AI will continue to get better for a while at least. And you'll be able to make a movie by maybe by writing some stuff down and you'll have a movie. The real problem is nobody cares. Nobody cares about quality. Nobody cares about the ethical dilemma of it. They will likely not even care about your film at all. Because the technology will allow for the proliferation of content in such a way that nobody will care anymore. I mean, this is essentially what Spotify and other streaming services have done to music. They've essentially commoditized it in such a way that nobody cares. It's just when an album comes out, well, 
maybe they they drop a song. You know, it used to be when an album came out, it was a big deal. It was a whole album. Maybe there are a few artists that still do that, but most people don't do that anymore. Most people drop a song here or there, and a lot of people don't care. This was essentially the original promise of the internet was it was going to bring news and information to the fore because anyone could be a newscaster. And it sort of flooded the headspace of most humans in such a way that they don't care anymore. They don't know. They don't want to know. You know, um, our parents' generation, I guess, I don't think they're older than boomers, I guess. Maybe you call them boomers. They trust their TV. They trust their doctor. They trust their pastor. If it comes from one of those three sources, they accept it as true. If it comes from anywhere else, well, then how are they to know whether it's true or not? Um, We're different. We've developed discernment. We've had to develop discernment because we know um, that these sources are not always telling the truth, and we recognize that there are a lot of sources of information out there that may actually contain the truth or a portion of the truth. So um, it's a little bit harder for the older folks to get it. We recognize it, but the problem is nobody cares. Nobody cares about that stuff anymore. They are going to become more and more apathetic to what the actual truth is, not only because there's too much information out there and they have no discernment, but because they are miserable human beings who are entertained to death by TikTok and video games and whatever it is um, that you know occupies their time, anything other than uh, community, spiritual reflection, or these other things which have typically given humans meaning throughout throughout history. So that's one of the problems. Now, the other problem with AI, real quick, is um, it will uh, it will destroy itself. This is I, I'm convinced of this. And and while I was doing this book, um, my son and I went to go see Creator. I don't know if you saw that movie. It was a it was essentially an AI movie. It's very very disturbing. Um, it was probably as disturbing, almost as disturbing as um, Steven Spielberg's AI. If you ever saw that movie, which was profoundly disturbing, I I still disturbed by it. Twenty year thirty years later, I'm still disturbed by it. Creator was also disturbing, not quite, but it. it it was worth it. It was worth a watch because what it did was it made me realize something really important about AI and technology that I hope uh, comforts you if you're someone that fears it. I hope this comforts you. What I realized is increasing levels of AI technology will require increasing levels of human intelligence. This is maybe not a one-to-one linear relationship, but it is there. As you increase the levels of computer-driven humanoids and audio recognition and all these things, it will require increasing levels of human intelligence. The problem is, or the solution, if you're on my side of things, the solution is increasing levels of AI will cause decreasing levels of human intelligence. Okay, let me say that one more time. Increasing the levels of of AI will in- require increasing levels of human intelligence. But increasing the levels of AI will create 
decreasing levels of human intelligence. So therein lies the problem. It won't go on forever. It will burn itself out because at some point, humankind will become so stupid that it's unable to maintain the technology that allows for all the things we fear. Now, you may think, well, the software will be out there and the code will be out there and people will know how to do it and it'll be open source and you can recreate it. And once you know you let the cat out of the bag, then there's no turning back. And I disagree. And the reason I disagree is because there is infrastructure, there is logistics, there is manufacturing, there are all sorts of things that bring the digital idea into meat space, into the space of actual physical embodiment. And these things are so complex and will require such complexity that they will be unable to be sustained by the human population that has been birthed and raised and educated by AI. Okay, do you get that? It's already happening. Think about how many phone numbers do you know from memorization? Just think about, go through your phone and think, how many numbers could I actually dial right now if I didn't have my phone on me? This is just one example of many, of course, but... Your memory as a human being is already being sacrificed at the altar of technology because you don't need to remember things anymore. You can just hit the person's name and it dials their number. If you forgot when their birthday is, you can look that up. If you forgot where your grandfather was buried, you can Google that. If you forgot how to make chicken soup, well, you can Google that. Everything is at the touch of your finger and requires zero cognitive function to to manipulate, to retrieve. And that's just one of many things. I'm sure you've seen these videos on the internet of teachers saying with horror how terrified they are that their children's IQ ability to read or um, understand the context of a written passage is just disappearing. And this is everywhere. I mean, this is in America where I feel like our public education system, as, as embarrassing as it is in some ways, is still probably pretty good. It's still probably better than a lot of other people. So um, it, the infrastructure required to maintain all these things that you might fear, all the crazy humanoid robots and killer drone technology and nuclear bombs and all this stuff is likely to disappear slowly over time. And I think I just, I just read some story that the British Navy, uh, they, they, they've got essentially two major warships and they couldn't even launch one of them because it had some problems, some mechanical problems. And the people that knew how to maintain it had retired and there was no one there who knew how to fix it. I heard the story recently of, um, uh, was it Craftsman Tools that was, um, I think... It, you know, it was owned by Sears and it was made in the USA proudly forever. And um, they got bought, I think, by a bigger company. And, oh, they were taking it to China. And everybody said, oh, okay, uh, quality is going to go down. Of course, quality is going to go down. The, this once great American brand is going to be in shambles. 
And as expected, the quality started to go down and people stopped buying it. And they said, okay, hang on, wait a minute. We're going to build a new factory in America and it's going to be the most amazing technologically sophisticated manufacturing facility ever made on the planet. And they spent billions of dollars on this. It was all these robotic um, manufacturing machines that could do all the work of humans and it could make the exact same quality that the original handmade tools would be. And uh, it would be, you know, the envy of the world. And they, they spent billions of dollars on this, years making this. And within a year or two of opening it, they shut it down because they couldn't make it work. It was too sophisticated. They didn't know how to fix the problems. All the old timers that had the knowledge and the domain expertise required to make the tools the way they used to make them were gone. And the factory at the cost of billions of dollars shut down. So all that to say, I don't fear AI and technology at the end of the day because I think it will destroy itself. It will destroy humanity through that, um, but humanity will be fine. Humanity will rise again. Um, the, the lack of technology will be better for it, which is why sometimes I say, you know, I want to give up my smartphone. Uh, I, I want to give it up. I, I'm Amish 2.0. I want to go back, um, maybe not to the 1800s, but maybe to 1989, the greatest year that's ever existed. So um, with that, we're coming up to the end of the show. I hope you guys have enjoyed this. I've certainly enjoyed talking to you. We've made it three hours. For those of you who made it the whole way through, congratulations. You have listened to everything I know. I literally have nothing else left to say that may have any significance to it. So from here on out, um, I'll be having guests on and we'll go back and forth and have some banter about maybe some more important things and maybe some less important things. They'll be able to talk about their objects of affection or their signs of decline. And we'll have some great conversation. I hope you've enjoyed this. As I've mentioned a couple of times, I've got a bunch of books. They're for sale on my website at forestmoretti.com and amazon.com. They're really interesting. I don't write books unless I can find something really interesting to, to write about. I'm also selling those Good Luck With Your Vaccine shirts again. They were really popular back in the day. People loved wearing them. They're back on the store as well as the um, Do Not Vaccinate bracelets, like if you're going in for surgery or something. And um, if you can subscribe to my website, it's three bucks a month and you get all the old My Incredible Opinion videos. The search feature is really good on there. You can just search like polio and it will show you every video I've ever done on polio. Um, you can search Brady Bunch, which is the episode everybody always wants to find. And there's a bunch of other good things on there. I'll have transcripts of the show for the subscribers, uh, maybe synopses or summaries if I can stand the AI doing that. Freaks me out. I'm still torn about that. But regardless, um, I'm really excited about the show. I'm really excited about the future of the show. I hope to have some really important conversations on here. Uh, perhaps I can go for a while without getting canceled, but I've been trying to avoid some landmines tonight. I'm sure I won't be able to do that forever as these other guests come on. But regardless, I've really enjoyed this. Um, this is the first of what I hope to be many, many more shows. They are streaming uh, live on Twitter Spaces and my website at forestmoretti.com. And obviously, as I said, they will be available after the episode in podcast form 
currently on Apple and Spotify and also my website at forestmurray.com. Thank you everyone for listening in. This has been a, a wonderful experience. I'm glad we made it three hours. I hope you tell everyone about the show. I hope you listen in next week. Be sure to listen out for Woe and the incredible story that we're going to share with him. So thank you guys. We will see you next time.